This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition, with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Many of those names are people I have had on this show, and there's a reason they're all using FizzyVantage. Visit FizzyVantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I take that one every day. I'm rocking the peach mango flavor right now. The performance boosting Endurex, that's great for sport climbers and trad climbers, and their delicious protein supplements, weapons grade whey, and the plant-based PowerPlex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to this coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. I wake up, throw on a podcast, add a scoop of Athletic Greens to about eight to 12 ounces of cold water, shake that up, and I sip on that while I'm making my coffee and breakfast. It's super refreshing, it tastes really good. There's some fruit extracts and a little stevia in there to make it tasty but not too sweet. I look forward to it every morning, almost as much as my first cup of coffee, which is saying a lot. One scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of this stuff as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I like to eat whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh fruits and veggies, not to mention organic, when you travel to some of these remote climbing areas. If I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered, and I love the peace of mind that gives me for the rest of the day. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash nugget. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt, and my guest today is Scott Johnston. Scott is an elite alpinist and skier. He's also an author of a couple very popular books in the alpinist and mountain running community, Training for the New Alpinism and Training for the Uphill Athlete. And Scott is an expert coach. He's been doing this stuff for many, many years. He famously coached Steve House, one of the greatest alpinists of all time during the peak of his career. And basically, this episode is a masterclass on endurance training. I figured we would talk a lot about training for alpinism, training for mountain running, and hiking uphill, things along those lines, because that is definitely Scott's world. But I was really surprised, actually, at how much of the information in Scott's brain is totally relevant for rock climbing. I actually took away a ton of nuggets for myself in this conversation for my own climbing goals. So yeah, I think this is a great episode for all of you, any of you who are interested in training and specifically endurance, whether you are a mountain athlete 
or a sport climber or even a boulderer. I think you will find a lot of juicy nuggets in this episode. It definitely changed the way I am going to think about my endurance training moving forward. I've actually never heard someone explain the different tiers of endurance and how they feed into each other the way that Scott did in this episode. Anyway, I loved this episode. Scott is absolutely one of the best in the world when it comes to this topic. I was honored to have him on and I hope you find it interesting and useful. Let's jump in. Please enjoy this deep dive into all things endurance training with Scott Johnston. Well, I'm very excited for this, Scott. It's great to have you here. And uh, this is really fun for me because you are an expert outside of my normal lane, I suppose. Like usually I'm asking questions, hoping to get some self-serving advice that I can apply to my own climbing. And this time I think I get to just kind of just be able to be curious and ask you questions um, about this thing that's kind of otherworldly to me, you know, this this um, this different side of climbing and a life in the mountains that I don't really spend as much time in personally, hoping that it helps other people and just because I'm curious about you. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on. I'm excited to talk more about the topic that you just kind of teased us with, um, getting more in the weeds on training and, and uh, geeking out a little bit about that. But first... Apparently, you have a very fascinating past life. I have a couple notes in front of me. You have a background in engineering. You helped design some very advanced telescope technology when you were young. And you used to be a car mechanic, and you would import and refurbish old European sports cars and motorbikes. Is all of that true? Yeah, I'm afraid it is. <laughs> I've had a rather... Uh, a spotty past, but but first spotty. Thing, thank you for having me on, Stephen. I really appreciate it. It'll be, I think we're gonna have a fun chat. Um, yeah, I not maybe spotty is the wrong word, but yeah, maybe eclectic is a little more the right word. I yeah, I did. I studied engineering in school um, and and math. I got a, two degrees and. Um, and I had no intention whatsoever, actually, of ever wanting to be an engineer, but I wanted to study something that would be too difficult to try to learn on my own, that I needed someone to help me with. And I started in physics, and then I found out I wasn't smart enough to be a physicist, so <laughs> I had to switch to engineering. And um, and my intention, actually, was to be a climber. Um, I mean, I was very, very active climbing at a reasonably high level. This would have been in the, you know, the, the early to mid-70s. And I I didn't even, the day after my last final exam, I was on an airplane to Alaska to climb a new route. Um, and I had a terrible accident on that trip that, you know, pretty much for a while, I thought it was, was going to definitely change my life. Um, and it wasn't clear that I would ever like walk without you know, a cane or something again. And so I was at that point, I realized, oh, I maybe I have to use this engineering degree for something. And so I went to work for an aerospace company in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I grew up and um, hated every minute of it, actually. Um, shortly after I went, one of my college professors and I started um, a business in and we started, yeah, we were designing and building um, big uh, 
sort of research grade telescopes. And we invented some technology that we patented that kind of revolutionized the way telescopes worked at that time. And so I did that for a while. And then when my leg healed up, I decided I was going to get back into climbing again. And so I sold my interest in that business. And um, yeah, it's been a little bit of a wild ride. I've just always been the kind of person that, you know, I'm open to other ideas. And if something else comes along that's interesting, I'm you know ready to, to tackle it. And uh, I kind of rode the engineering horse as far as I wanted to and, and um, you know, went on to do other things. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. That's fascinating. The uh, the car mechanic thing, was that another passing phase or hobby or is that something you still enjoy? Well, it was when I um, was going through school, um, I was working at um, as a mechanic for, uh, I actually worked at the Ferrari dealership in Denver and I would drive down there. My old, I had an old like 1960 VW bus that I would <laughs> drive down, you know, between classes and go to work in the, the, the shop there. Um, and then I moved on to work at the uh, kind of the largest uh, independent Porsche garage in Denver. Um, and so I had this, you know, real, was passionate about machinery and, you know, figuring that kind of stuff out. And so later on, when I had to do something with my life um, and I was looking around, I, I recognized kind of an arbitrage opportunity um, in that these I mean, that this is, we're going way down in the weeds here. I hope we're not boring people with this. No, I, I think uh, but, this is great. So anyway, I I, I saw that, um, so Europe, all these kind of um, exotic sports cars that were built after World War II, um, they were all exported to the U.S. because there was no money in Europe. I mean, it was, you know, Europe was devastated. And during the 80s through the 90s and early 2000s, uh, Europe's middle class got to be reasonably wealthy. And um, they suddenly wanted to, you know, the generation, in their, let's say in their 40s and 50s, who had seen these cars when they were young but could never afford them, suddenly had enough money that they wanted to buy them. And all the cars were in the U.S. And I noticed this, the arbitrage um, opportunity was that the prices in the U.S. were amazingly low compared to the prices in, in Europe. And so I realized I could, with my skill set, I could kind of search around, find some of these cars and repair them um, and ship them over to be sold, to, you know, sell them to Europeans. And I ended up developing kind of a dealer network there that I would supply with cars for a number of years. I did that. Then the internet spoiled that because, oh. you know, they, as, as you probably know, in any kind of market, information is really important. But in the internet, leveled the playing field and took away the the arbitrage opportunity because now you had a worldwide market, and so information just kind of ruined my life at that point. <laughs> it ruined my job, <laughs> and it's it's great now. They, but every, you know the price is what it is internationally. It's not like there's one price in the U.S. and oh, another I see. price that makes in sense. Europe. So right. so anyway, that I just moved on to something else. I, I was you know I had been a ski racer for a lot of my life, a cross country ski racer, and. I was um, offered an opportunity to coach a, a junior ski racing team. This is about the time I met Steve House. And we started, Steve and I started climbing together. And I was coaching this group about, we had about 120 kids from the age of six to 18, uh, you know, through high school. And I had a, a number of uh, assistant coaches that were helping me. 
And while I was doing that, um, while I was, I had been racing, ski racing at a fairly high level through a lot of this period. Um, and when I was asked to take this job, I was really enthusiastic about it, but I suddenly realized I didn't know anything about coaching. I didn't really have the background, you know, the, especially the training knowledge. I mean, I knew what I had done as for training, but I didn't really know much about the science of sports training. And so I just dove in it with you know, both feet and started reading everything I could get my hands on. Um, and then, so I, and I ended up having pretty good success. I had five, five of the people that I coached ended up going to the Olympics. Wow. Um, and, and so at that time I was also, like I said, climbing with Steve and um, he asked for some training advice and some training help. And so I basically started helping him with his training. Um, and then the the story, how that kind of we're, we're getting a little closer to maybe the topic that really interests your audience. Um, in that, while Steve, you know, as he as maybe maybe most of the audience is familiar with Steve and his career, but he had a pretty outstanding alpine climbing career. And um, and then in in 2010, he had a very serious fall um, on the North Face of Mount Temple that almost killed him and pretty you know pretty much ended his definitely ended his professional climbing career almost ended you know, his climbing career totally um i was he wrote while he was um kind of recovering from all the, all the uh from all the damage that was done he wrote a book um kind of a memoir of that about his climbing life and he went on tour with that book i was that year in norway coaching skiing with on the world cup for some americans and he called me up and said hey i'm on this book tour with my my book and everywhere i go people say well how did you train to do all this stuff and he kind of developed a little a one-liner which was well i could tell you but it would take a whole book mm. and he said i think we should write some write down what, what we did for training and I poo-pooed the idea saying, I don't think anybody's going to care. I mean, there, you could have counted the number of alpinists that were actually doing what I know as training, you know, on, on one hand and had a couple fingers left over. So, um, but he eventually talked me into it. And then Patagonia decided they wanted to publish the book. We honestly thought we might sell a thousand copies. Well, it's now sold well over a hundred thousand copies. Wow. Um, and we suddenly went from think we thought we'd literally write the book and then just go back to the rest of our lives and you know not hear much about it but we soon had people requesting coaching and training I, I advice and all that and before we knew it we had um you know, a coaching business that we had not intended upon so it, it kind of fit into the scheme of the rest of my my previous life which was and I, I was not a career type person and um, I just had taken advantage of opportunities as they came along through my life. And this was another one of them, but it's one that I've really developed, you know, been very passionate about. And um, it's certainly, I mean, it's this whole, these, these books and this, the, the coaching business, I think it's probably the thing I'm the most proud of having accomplished in my life um, because it's, it's helped a lot of other people understand how to perform better at their sports in the mountains. Well, that's, yeah, that's awesome to hear. And uh, you you ended up writing two books together, is that right? Training for the New Alpinism, and yep. was the other one called Uphill Athlete? Yeah, Training for the Uphill Athlete. Training yeah. for so the Uphill Athlete, got it. After the Alpinism book came out, um, not too long afterwards, um, Killian Journay um, got in touch with us and said, hey, 
you know, and he has a sports science background himself. So he understood that the the print the training principles that I had elucidated in the new alpinism book were applicable to you know essentially almost any endurance sport. In fact, they are um, because they're based on traditional endurance training ideas. And he said, I think you should write another book about you know training for these other mountain sports like running and ski mountaineering and that sort of thing. And and uh, I said, well, would you be willing to collaborate with me on it? And so I we did. Killian, that was the year that Killian had a bad leg break. And so he was at home kind of uh, sort of uh, recovering from that surgery and all that stuff. So uh, it allowed plenty of time. Otherwise, he's very hard to pin down time-wise, hard to, con to connect with. So while he was on the couch, we managed to put a lot of that information together, and Steve acted as the um, kind of the photo editor for that book. Um, but that opened up, you know, an entirely new segment of the mountain athlete community, where people that were interested, you know, what Killian was was saying when we when he first came to us, he said most people that do mountain sports will take one look at the cover of Training for the New Alpinism and go, well, I'm not a climber. Yeah. That's the appeal to me doesn't or and it doesn't apply to me so that was and it made sense you know it, the book was directed at climbers uh, when we wrote it we didn't really think about this other market and the other the needs in that other area yeah yeah that that all that all makes sense I, it's interesting because i had assumed and i you know it's on me for not having uh checked the dates on the books but i had assumed you'd gone the other way you'd started more generally with mountain endurance and then focused uh, the training towards alpinism in particular. But yeah, it's interesting to hear that you went the other way with it. I'll add a little context there. So Killian, Killian Jornet, for you know, for you rock climbers listening, boulderers that don't know who that is, one of the greatest trail runners of all time um, in his mid-30s now, 35 years old, roughly. No, I think he, yeah, he's probably in his early 30s now. Early 30s, mm -hmm. okay. Still at the top of his game, still absolutely one of the best oh, yeah. in the world. And uh, yeah, you recently had him on on your podcast, I think, too. Did yeah, he, he's yeah, you know, like you said, he's still at the amazingly, he's had a, an incredibly long career, um, you know, both in ski mountaineering and trail running. And you know, he's a decent climber, um, you know, an alpine climber. He's not, you know, doesn't do hard technical rock climbs, but you know, he's done some impressive and stout routes, uh, in the Alps. So he's he's solid, um, in that area too. He's very well, well rounded, um. But, you know, his passion is definitely moving fast through the mountains. I mean, people probably know that it was like three years ago, he you know, set the speed record on Mount Everest and then he came down and rested four days and went back and broke it again. <laughs> so crazy. Um, yeah, it's so incredible. Um, this is a huge question, <clears throat> maybe an overwhelming question, but I am curious. What did you learn from Killian Jornet? How did spending time with him and collaborating on a book, how did that shift your paradigm? What what aha moments did you have from from working with Killian or from talking with Killian? Well, probably the, the biggest one, and this is one that he and I tried to point out in the book, is you know, he's a bit of a freak of nature. And and I think this is something that's applicable across, you know, all sports, but I think it's worth noting you know to the to the climbing community and because I, a lot of climbers that i've met over the years they don't have often don't have a traditional sports background and especially or don't have um 
a, a, a deep understanding of training and training theory and all of that stuff. I mean, many people are attracted. I certainly was as a kid. I mean, I was um, I, I was attracted to the rebelliousness and, and the kind of counterculture nature. I've been growing up in Boulder, Colorado in the 60s. It was very strong counterculture. And I saw climbing as a way to kind of you know, rebel against the, the standard direction that people wanted you to live your life. I mean, that's what most of the climbers I was around at that time were, you know, kind of, they were outcasts in a way. So they didn't, they didn't have this sort of, they didn't come from traditional sports. They, they did this thing and they didn't. And I think many people would have been insulted to call climbing a sport, mm. you know, that because sure, this yeah. was, it was like an anti-sport in a way. So anyway, well, I'm coming back to what your question is that, in any sport, looking at, at outliers like Killian or someone like Adam Andra is not, it'd be like looking at Usain Bolt at, if you're a runner. Like, yeah, it's, it's cool to look at what these freaks of nature can do. And we can learn from that. There's definitely things we can learn. But one of the big mistakes I see made over and over is people trying to mimic what those people have done. Mm. Either because and, and the, this becomes a problem when you don't either have the the training background that, that these elite athletes have, and because all often all we ever see is the YouTube performance. You know, we see you know a, a five minute video of Killian running around in the mountains, or we under we read about Killian you know breaking speed records or winning big races, or we see amazing other feats that these that these people do without understanding the context of it and the fact that, you know, Killing has been doing this for 20 years at an extremely high level. And he undoubtedly has some genetic gifts. And, and I think, you know, my working with um, a number of Olympians, I've seen incredibly talented athletes, some, some naturally gifted, some who work very hard to get to where they were. All, all of them worked hard, but some of them had to work extra hard that didn't have mm. that talent. And so I think that, you know, what I what I tried to, you know, I don't know that I learned this from Killian, but he it really cemented the idea for me is that there's things to learn about, you know, maybe how Killian trains, but to think that somebody who has a 40 hour a week job and is new to these sports, you know, and by new, I mean, you know, less than 10 years of, you know, serious training, that they can do these things that these other athletes are doing, you know, unless they have some phenomenal gift, it's highly unlikely. And I think it's a mistake to, to try to copy that. It could lead to injury, overtraining, that kind of stuff. And so that's, I think, you know, one of the points that, you know, he and I tried to drive home. I actually, he and I jokingly um, termed this the Killian effect. Which is that people see what he does and think, oh, he does that. I should, I should go try to do that. And so I think there's a lot too much of that. And I, this is, you know, something that you and I were speaking about maybe before we really went live on this was that there's this soundbite mentality about, you know, our whole modern life, everything being compressed down into, you know, very short bits of information because we're being told that we don't have um, attention spans anymore. I think that's crazy. I think people do have attention spans, but it, the media and whatnot has dumbed it down. And so 
we're looking at um, you know these these again these feats of these amazing feats without really understanding the context. So I think that one of the things I've tried to do with my approach is show people that first of all for all sports you know obviously my strength of knowledge really is in the endurance arena but that you know and I and I but I pay a lot of attention to um the rock climbing area because I'm you know even though I'm not a very good climber I'm really passionate about it and I see the carryover from you know traditional strength training strength and power training to rock climbing and um as you maybe you remember, or maybe if you haven't ever looked at it, the training for the new alpinism, I conferred with a, an old friend of mine, Tony Yanero, on on the strength section because I think Tony was definitely one of the pioneers in rock climbing in ter in terms of developing, you know, taking traditional strength training ideas and you know applying them to um, an unusual sport like mm. rock climbing, and and I think I followed that same path with taking traditional endurance training sport ideas and applying them to these rather unconventional sports, everything from alpinism to trail running. Mm. Oh, that's great. I, I want to uh, just dive into the weeds with that and get some recommendations for people listening. Um, to set that up, this is a little late in the conversation to be asking this question, but I think this would be, I think this will provide good context for people listening. You know, it goes back to uh, what Killian said about people are going to see the cover of the new alpinism book and think, oh, that's not me. I don't really aspire to climb big snowy mountains. Certainly some people listening to this probably do, but who are we talking to here? You know, I, I think of Evoke Endurance I don't know, if I were to categorize what you do broadly, I would say mountain endurance athletes. Um, but but what yes. what what falls under that umbrella? I mean, everything from trail running to Nordic skiing to alpine climbing. Yeah, who have you found gravitates and learns a lot and benefits from from your second book the most? I would say, yeah, it covers that full spectrum. And, you know, while there are a few specialists and professionals that you know they boulder or they are ski mountaineers, I mean, you know there there are people that fit into these very narrow specialist categories. And if you want to be the best, then obviously you need to specialize. But I think, and maybe this is something you found in your audience, but I, I sort of like when when I worked on writing training for the new alpinism, it was directed at you know, trying to train somebody to to, try to climb like Steve was climbing, essentially. You know, was saying, okay, here's how a professional climber would approach this type of training. Well, but then we find out that there's only a handful of professional alpinists out there. Um, but most people, like, they want to go run in the mountains in the summer, and maybe they do bouldering or, you know, rock climbing, or in the winter, they're skiers. And most people are generalists. And I think it's that area that honestly needs kind of the most direction because it's confusing. So that let's say, you know, I work often with like climbing guides, but maybe they're, and so in the wintertime, they're ski guiding, mm. but they don't want to, they want to be able to make that trip to Red Rocks, you know, in April and still climb pretty strong when they go there. So how do they deal? How do they train over the course of the winter so that they don't, completely be and they're not completely coming off the couch when they start rock climbing in the spring and so and that's a pretty common that i've found in these past 10 years of working with this this kind of mountain audience is that very few people are truly specialized 
And most people are generalists. And they're the ones, like I said, that I think can benefit the most because it's much more complicated to train someone than it is to train a specialist, gotcha. to train a general. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. And that's something that that's always been fascinating and uniquely challenging about rock climbing. If you're, you know, I always saw this in college. Like I had a lot of friends who I climbed with who were generalists and I was the, kind of the outlier. I was the obsessed rock climber. So I was climbing in the gym or climbing outside pretty much year round. Um, but I had a lot of friends who would ski tour in the winters and let climbing go to the wayside. And then they would mountain bike in the summers and let climbing go by the wayside. And you know, if you bounce between running, biking, and skiing, all of those things do a decent job of maintaining the fitness for the other things, right? Like they all kind of feed each other, yeah. or at least um, they have enough overlap that you kind of maintain some fitness there. But man, as soon as you stop hanging on to little edges with your fingers, your forearms just forget what to do, you know? And then you go back to climbing after a few months and it's like, God, this is so hard again. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that because I, I did get a, a listener question for you actually from a patron. This is from Alex and it's a pretty long question. So I'll keep it, I'll just kind of um, summarize it and keep it general and then we can kind of expand on some of the details for for more people listening. But Alex writes that, um, Alex moved to a mountain town about three years ago, used to climb exclusively, and now splits his time between uh, climbing, bouldering, and, and sport climbing in the shoulder seasons, and has gotten really into backcountry skiing during the winter. And it sounds like Alex is pretty familiar with your material and has read your books and has tried trying to, you know, has tried maintaining a baseline of about two to three thousand meters of vert a week at the same time focusing on climbing uh, but but has some questions you know how exactly what you're talking about how much maintenance is the right amount and uh, just curious if you have any advice there so that's pretty general he asked some more pointed questions but uh but uh, that's a great question yeah let's start with it, that it's the perennial question that you know i and our other coaches get con you know confronted with on a daily basis almost so yeah um well the, there's a so we can, when we think of things like running or ski touring, um, ski mountaineering, that sort of thing, that's low intensity, long duration endurance work. Now it has a pretty significant muscular component to it. That's obviously all, you know, pretty much all lower body. So you'd think, okay, I can balance, I can go out and ski tour in the morning for three hours and I can go to the climbing gym in the evening. Now there's a problem with that. And I'll explain this again, this coming right out of traditional sports training theory is that so long duration endurance activities, you know, there's the, obviously there's several different modes of fatigue. You know, with rock climbing, we're dealing typically with a short term um, you know, neuromuscular fatigue uh, that causes you to, you know, to fail and you know, your, hand, your hands open up and you fall off. You know, other if, I mean, unless you don't, unless you do something technically wrong, but that's the kind of fatigue that's ice, which is a fairly simple fatigue to deal with. And that's why, you know, training for rock climbing, while it technically is an incredibly complex sport, I mean, it's probably the most complex sport because there's, you know, there's almost an infinite number of movements. Um, and, but the fatigue component is pretty well understood in terms of how to train for that kind of fatigue. And likewise, when you're looking at training for endurance, there's fatigue mechanisms there, but they tend to, there's several different kinds of fatigue mechanisms that come to with endurance. And I won't bore people with all of that detail, but one of the biggest ones 
mechanisms of fatigue is central nervous system fatigue because you're making these you know thousands and thousands of repetitions of the same muscle and so that dumbs down i mean it dulls the central nervous system and because of that fatigue like if you go do a four-hour ski tour in the morning and you go to the climbing gym that night and you expect to climb hard it's probably not going to happen because you're carrying this central nervous system fatigue now if you went to the climbing gym and it was a high volume day and you were climbing you know at you know a lower grade for yourself and you were just there to do volume that would work because then it's it's also another type of endurance now, so endurance training is something that generally can be done when you're carrying some fatigue, especially these lo really long durations. Whereas the speed, power, and strength type of training has to be done when you're fresh in order to get benefit from it because you're needing to operate at you know, near maximal capacities that you have. You know, whether it's, you know, recruitment, muscle recruitment, muscle fiber recruitment, um, technical skills. Uh, all, you know, the coordination of those technical move skills. So if you're going to do a combination like that, where you ski tour in you know, the morning and you go climbing in the evening, you're going to be better off if it's a low intensity climbing, long duration climbing session, kind of what, what the Anderson brothers termed arcing. Mm. And I think, you know, that's, they had, those guys had a very good understanding of, you know, physiology. I mean, I think one of them is an actual physio physiologist, but um so they're they're using that arcing as kind of this aerobic base training for climbing. Now, if you but if you have a hard, you know, let's say that's you're planning to go to the climbing gym and do four by fours or hard bouldering problems, you'd have been better off to go there first thing in the morning and do that workout when you're fresh, and then you know push your ski touring to later in the day if possible. Um, so you, you want to prioritize the, you know, the high quality training before the, the low quality, high duration training. That's a kind of a, just a general rule of thumb, but I think it's very, very applicable, um, to, you know, to these kind of people who are doing, want to do all this stuff at the same time. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it's, uh, it does seem like a, uh, law of nature, law of physics to some degree. Like I've always heard the same thing in climbing training specifically. You know, if you're, com if you're a sport climber, for instance, and you want to work on your finger strength and your technique and your power and your endurance, um, you should always do the skill-based stuff when you're the most fresh and then the strength stuff and then work your way towards power endurance and then endurance if you're combining things in the same day um, because yeah. of the central nervous system fatigue thing. So... Yeah, absolutely. It makes yep. a lot of sense. Um, I think something that's probably really difficult for someone like Alex, and I apologize, I actually don't know Alex's gender, so I apologize if I uh, made an assumption there, Alex. But um, combining, I guess, how much maintenance is appropriate? You know, that's something that I think is a unique challenge for generalists. If you want to be a good backcountry skier and a good climber, Obviously, some maintenance is is really helpful. So you're not coming off the couch, like you said, in April when you start rock climbing again. But it's really easy to do too much. And, I, you know, I remember Steve Bechtel has this great analogy of having a four burner stove and you have these different things cooking and you're making this nice meal and you can't be boiling them all at the same time. You're kind of rotating them around and you have some on the back burner just simmering. But yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what are some common pitfalls? Where do people go wrong? Or do you have general advice for generalists to avoid that that easy trap of trying to do too much 
at the same time and compromising their performance or their gains in in the, the thing that they're focusing on during that season. Yeah, I that's a really common phenomenon in in all sports. I think is this the no, the more is better notion. And there's a very famous um, running coach named an Italian running coach named Renato Canova, who's coached more world champions, world record holders, Olympic champions in every event from the 800 meters out to the marathon than any other coach ever. And one of the things he has said is the best training is not the most training you can handle. It's the least training you need. Mm. And because when you start, um, but pushing to the envelope of your capacity, your, your your working capacity, and we have work capacity in a number of different realms. I mean, there's the you know when when we think of something like you know canvassing. Now that's a, a powerful movement with you know very little very short duration. So you have you can develop a capacity in that a, a power capacity. But if we go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. We talk about running a hundred miles. Well, that's its own type of work capacity. And they have obviously need very different types of training. But what the point being is that if you try to exceed your capacity for training in that realm too frequently, you don't improve. Um, and I, I see that often. And I'm sure you have even probably had plateaus in your own training where and then then you took a break. And, you know. I, sometimes people have experienced this where, okay, well, you're going to go visit your your parents for Christmas and you know you're not going to be training for, you know, several days. And then when you get back to the gym, you suddenly go, whoa, do I feel strong? Mm. Um, and it's because you, were, you weren't recovering well. Now, to build capacity in these different realms, you do need to, to fatigue yourself. You do need to, to push it. Um, but it, that's one of the reasons it's very hard to improve performance while you're building capacity, because you're always dealing with some low level of fatigue. And that's why we taper before major events is to um, certainly, yeah, the fitness, because you, you're building fitness as you're building capacity, but it's often masked by fatigue. Mm. because the, you know you can't perform at as high a level so you need to rest enough to let that fatigue kind of go away so that you can then you know, utilize that capacity that you've built up now back to your question um what i have found work well and again this is coming right out of traditional sports science where when you have a complex sport let's say um like middle distance running where the athletes need to have a lot of speed and power, but they also have to have a lot of endurance. And training those two kinds of qualities at the same time, when you train one, it reduces, we're trained to increase the capacity, let's say on aerobic endurance, it reduces the capacity on the speed and power side. Likewise, you know, the, the opposite being true. And so it's a very tricky balance in complex sports where you're trying to improve capacities all across the board. So we take that idea and apply it to the generalist who's trying to train for, you know, campusing one day, but then a four hour ski tour on another day. It's the same idea. And what I have been able to achieve good results with is, again, taking a traditional sports comp idea, which is block periodization. So you might have a, a period, a block that could, could be as short as a week. It might be as long as three or four weeks where the emphasis is on one of these qualities. Now, so let's say it's going to be, okay, the, you're, you know you're 
or you have an opportunity to do a bunch of ski touring or running or whatever it is during that period. So you're going to emphasize that quality during this block. And the rock climbing is going to be going to, like you were saying with Steve Bechtel, it's on the back burner a little bit. And so you're going to probably, instead of focusing on endurance climbing, because that's going to conflict a little bit with all the other endurance stuff you're doing, you might just focus on very short, high intensity, like hangboard sessions or campus sessions. Because though, as you pointed out, those high intensity, you know, grip strength, finger strength goes away pretty fast if we don't use it. But it does not take very much, you know, <clears throat> two sessions, two hangboard sessions or, you know, a, a little bit of intensity in a week can go a long way to maintaining that. So what we'll often do is periodize people this way, these guides that I was talking about, um, try to periodize it so they have a block where, let's say, the skiing or the running is the focus. And then the next block, three weeks later, is the opposite focus. So, okay, now we're going to focus on, you know, main, you know, improving the capacity on the climbing side of things while just trying to maintain capacity on this low intensity, long duration endurance. Um, and so, and you, by flip-flopping those blocks, you can, you're never going to be as good as the specialists when you do that. It's a compromise, but it's a, it's a way to get through these kind of um, periods where, like I said, you're, you don't want to come off the couch in April and, um, be, you know, have a terrible time when you do that road trip, first road trip. Right, right. Yeah, you, yeah, you might not, you know, be as well trained as the specialist who just kept climbing all winter, but uh, you're going to be a hell of a lot better than if you just sat on the couch and skied and, and stopped rock climbing altogether. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's That's great. the biggest, that's the kind of the biggest thing. You know, when I was young and we didn't have any climbing gyms, you know, growing up in Boulder, you really didn't, if you went climbing in the winter, it was usually ice climbing. You couldn't really start rock climbing in Boulder until April. And so, yeah, we'd have had all winter of, you know, doing something else. Um, and so it always ma made that transition back is kind of a shock to your system to, to get on rock again for the first time after not having touched rock since, you know, October or something. Mm -hmm. A couple questions that sprang to mind for me, going back to the, cent the central nervous system fatigue thing, just curious if you have thoughts on this, if it depends on the athlete or if you have general recommendations, but you know, it makes sense if you go out and ski tour all day, you're gonna be compromised if you try to train finger power or finger strength in the evening. How long does that take to bounce back and recover? You know, could you have an effective finger training session the next day or would it be best to take a rest day and then do it in the morning before your next ski tour day. Um, yeah, any any guidelines there or, or recommendations? That's where training gets really individualized. Okay. And I, I yes, you can probably give some. I can probably give you some very general ideas on that. And I think one of the things that people need to do is monitor re their recovery, um, because I think a lot of times people don't pay attention to that. They people will get onto a training plan of some sort. And they become slaves to that plan. They think, you know, I'm just, if I don't stick to this plan, I'm not going to improve. But you have to remember that no training plan is perfect. Whoever wrote that training plan is not omniscient. They don't know how you're going to be feeling four Tuesdays from now. I mean, it's just not possible. And so if you need to take the general ideas that were put in that training plan, but monitor your own, you know, sense of your own recovery, which is one of the reasons I've I've spent so many 
tens of thousands of words on on monitoring recovery in both the books and on the website and in podcasts I've done because I think that's something that's under-recognized. Mm. And there are a lot of different recovery or monitoring techniques. I mean, but certainly one for short duration, high intensity things like power and speed. I mean, you've probably experienced this. You may just, you, you probably have a hangboard right there in your van. Um, you know, you could just hang from that board one day and you'll go, you, I mean, you haven't done it so many times that when you do that initial session, just hang off your fingers, you're going to go, Ooh, either. I mean, I feel, I feel really strong today or I feel like shit. Mm. And, and on the days when you've, you know, you can tell you're weak and you're not, you just say, okay, I'm going to push this workout to another day. So I think that, you know, that's one very easy way to do it. You know, for, for endurance sports, what I'll often recommend is you do your warm up, And during that warm up, if you're paying attention, you're going to realize, am I prepared to, I'm not sure you can always go do the workout training. You know, you're mentally tough. You're going to force yourself to do it. But am I going to benefit from that session that was planned for today? Um, if, if I'm not recovered. And so what I'll have people do is just pay attention during the warmup. And when, if they don't feel like they're fully recovered for whatever that session is, then they default to, you know, some very low intensity activity. Part of the reason for that is for some reason that's un, unknown to me, low intensity aerobic work has a restorative effect on our bodies. So it's like, you know, you just, go for a walk, you know, take the dog around the block, um, go for a 30 minute jog. Um, or maybe you, you just do a bunch of five laps on five, seven in the gym. Um, you know, that kind of stuff to, you know, keeps you active, but it definitely seems to speed recovery, low intensity activities. Um, so I will often or always tell people just if you, if you feel poor, you're not like, like you're not going to really, you're not really ready for that session. Instead of bludgeoning yourself and forcing yourself through it, you know, always default to something that's easy. And it, and it could be defaulting to something as, as you know, uh, low intensity as just, you know, a stretching session. Mm. Really feeling worked. Yeah. But, but I think it's very hard to give, you know, general ideas because some people will have very high work capacities in certain areas. And other people will have very low capacity for that kind of work. And unless you know that individual, um, and that's one of the reasons that training plans can be so, I'd say, they're deceptive in a way. And it's, it's again, that same problem I was talking about in the very beginning of trying to copy an elite athlete. Obviously, that elite athlete has exceptional work capacity in several of these different realms. Then and in most likely, you don't have that same you set of that work capacity across all those realms. And if you try to do what they do, you, you know, you have, you risk everything from injury and um, to overtraining to plateauing and you know, all that kind of stuff. If you, if you don't pay attention. Mm. Yeah. I have, I have a question about that. And then I want to circle back to the active recovery thing. Cause I have some questions about that too, but I've always wondered this. I think you'd be a great person to ask this question you know, start, starting off the conversation talking about how it's a mistake to copy elite athletes using Adam Andre as an example. I think he's a perfect example. You know, he he um, famously had 
at least periods of his training where he was doing like twice a day, six days a week or something and campusing like six different times a week and stuff, which just seems totally ludicrous. It is, it is ludicrous for most of us to, you know, comparing that to the, uh, 40 hour a week, you know, office person who's going to go to the, you know, the climbing gym in the evenings or whatever, or train for trail running in the evenings, whatever it is, to what extent should it be our goal as recreational or amateur athletes to build up our training capacity? Like, should it be a goal for me to work towards being able to train more days a week? Um, Or is that the wrong way of thinking about it? Because something I've noticed for myself is I can't, like in a training cycle, I can work up to being able to do more training, but I'm kind of compromising intensity potentially, um, quality potentially. And so it, it can kind of go either way. Like something that I've, I've talked about a lot on the show is I've had a couple winter training blocks. Um, some of the most successful training blocks I've had in my own climbing, uh, for bouldering and for sport climbing, I was only climbing like twice a week, but the, the sessions were incredibly high quality and high intensity. And then I was doing some weightlifting and some finger training on the side. In addition to that, um, but yeah, there's there's kind of like a fork in the road there. You know, it's like, should it be the goal to work up towards being more like Adam Andra and being able to handle more training and preparing our bodies for that? Or do we just find what works for us? And if it's a, a sparse schedule where we're only training a few times a week, we just work with that and build up the intensity as we're able to. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but yeah, traditional sports have already... They got the hook. I got this all figured out. Okay. So, so, uh, <laughs> Real I'll, quickly, when you say that, what what sports? What sports did you well, study? Not, what, gonna, what are you drawing? This from? is going to come from. This is come. This comes from swimming. Okay. And I'm going to explain this here in a second. But first of all, going, you, you got to deal with what you're dealing with. I mean, if you're working 40 hours a week and you got a family, you're not going to be training twice a day, six days a week. It just, you know, there's just that's not unrealistic. And we may be creating, you know, serious FOMO by pretending that we have, you know, that that's going to be in the cards for us. And I I think that that's something that has to be said right off the bat is these are professional athletes. This is what they do. Their job is doing this stuff, you know? So, you know, you need to separate that notion. Um, So the other thing that I was talking about with swimming is there's a very famous swing coach named Bob Bowman and he coached, um, Michael Phelps, who I would assume many people have heard the name, 17 um, Olympic gold medals, and over an extremely long career. Bowman, and this is, he's just restating some old school knowledge about training. Basically, he has uh, his concept, that fork in the road that you were talking about, is we have two types of training. This is very general, and we're basically talking about a model. Now, in mathematics and science and engineering, a model is used to explain a very complex system um, problem, but dumbing it down by you know making it really simple. Even though in its simple form, like we're going to be talking about now, it's not a hundred percent representative of reality. But it, at least it helps us wrap our brain around you know. I mean, one perfect example that, that that doesn't usually work very well is economics. I mean, you're talking about a phenomenally complex subject, you know, that involves everything from, you know, individual psychology um, to entire markets. 
but yet economists develop these models for trying to help them understand and predict how things are, are going to be happening. Well, Bowman's model for training is we have two types of training. First is capacity training. So this is with the idea of developing your working capacity in whatever realm it happens to be for long-term gains. So this is like putting money into the savings account and building that savings account, getting it as big as you can. Uh, he makes the analogy of a cup. So we're going to make the this capacity cup huge. And I'll explain how that cup concept can work. But basically, capacity is something you're going to be deferring performance in the short term for hopeful and probable gains in performance sometime out in the future. So you got this, you're compromised a little bit, but you're doing this capacity training to improve that working capacity. Now, the other type of training on the other side of that fork in the road is called utilization training. And this is where you utilize the capacity that you've managed to, to build. So now you've got this huge bank account. Now, when you go to utilizing training, you can go crazy spending money without bouncing checks because you've built this big work capacity. So when we see, when you're watching or here talking about Adam Andre doing this <clears throat> phenomenal stuff, and same thing you could say on the, on the endurance side, you could say talk about Killian, same sort of idea. I mean, people look at what that guy does on a daily basis and you know it would kill most people. Um, well, that's because they have this enormous cup and they maybe that training block that he was doing was a utilization training block. So yeah, he had built this huge working capacity in these different realms, and then he was putting it to use during that. Now, obviously, the 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 not obviously perhaps, but the the most common way is that you build capacity during what we might call in a normal sport an off season. And then you use it during, let's say, the competition season. You know, if you're a, a, a competitive athlete or, you know, a non-competitive athlete, you're going to go on a road trip. Well, that's your utilization block right there. You're going to be utilizing that training. So utilization training is to maximize the athlete's performance in the short term. So that stuff you were talking about doing i mean i'm not 100 sure but i would guess that those workouts were kind of during that block what those that's kind of a utilization block mm. that you were doing and so you saw really good gains from that the problem with utilization training if you extend it too long is you end up overdrawing that bank account mm. you know the, the capacity goes you can't build capacity and use it at the same time it's physiologically impossible. So that's why during the capacity building period in all sports, your performance is going to not be as good as, you know, it, it hopefully will be out in the future. And you have to be willing to accept that. And I think this is, so this is the difference. And this is a conceptual um, difference that I think I run into a lot with people is there's a big difference between training and exercise. And random exercise. Now, if you randomly exercise a lot and enough, you can get very good at whatever it is you're training for. Um, I mean, if you just go out and climb every day, yeah, you'll probably get quite good. But eventually, you're going to reach a plateau if you're just randomly exercising, because you're not going to be targeting you know, like. What training is meant to do is to target your weaknesses and improve them. So you have to figure out what your weaknesses are and then focus on them. Well, now, if you just go out and climb every day, you're you're kind of hitting 
you're, you're trying to build capacity in every aspect of your climbing, you know, the skills, finger strength, um, upper body strength, all that stuff. And, you know, eventually that will plateau. The, the, the things that, that you're worst at are going to hold you back. Um, and they won't improve. And so by training, what the difference with to training is if you found out, okay, my limitation is finger strength. Well, training means you got to address that finger strength issue and build that capacity up. Well, during that time, you may not climb as well during this period um, because you're going to be carrying this fatigue in your fingers. But later on, hopefully you've improved the size of that cup or the amount of money that's in that bank account. And when you shift to utilizing that capacity, you will climb at a higher level. Mm. Is that so that again, this is that traditional sports theory kind of being applied. I mean, when I watch, you know, climbing training videos and read about climbing training, I mean, there's so much in there that, you know, we've it's been this has been studied for a hundred years. It's just that climbing is now just discovering. Um, you know, like when talking to Tony, for instance, Tony totally understood all this stuff, you know, back in the in the you know 70s and 80s, that this was how this training, this strength training should work. And he applied it and applied it quite well. Um, and I think it's kind of now more in the the public's public view because of the internet and all the all the uh, material that's now available on training for climbing, people are utilizing. I think most of the information I read is, is quite good. I think people, maybe they don't recognize that it's coming from, you know, the theories of traditional sports. doesn't matter. They don't know that. But the fact is, I see stuff, I think this is really sound advice. Mm. You know, like that Anderson Brothers book, that's a really great book in terms of understanding, you know, training theory and and all that. Yeah. I hope that wasn't too long-winded. No, that was great. That's incredibly juicy, actually. Yeah, it gives me a lot to think about. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit more. I, You know, hearing you differentiate capacity training and utilization makes a lot of sense. I'm just having the thought that, man, I've, I've always kind of associated capacity with volume. But, I, I, you know, hearing you describe that, it, it sounds like it doesn't necessarily need to be connected to volume because you could be building finger strength capacity doing pretty high intensity max hang sort of stuff over a block of time. You're just talking about putting that money in the bank and being okay with not performing well at the same time. But can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, I imagine capacity training can look like many different things depending on whether you're training for bouldering or for trail running or for alpinism. What connects it? What yeah, I would love to hear you expand on that a little more. Well, so with all sports, I mean, you can kind of break down the the physiological demands of every sport. Well, the sports that we're kind of interested in, I'm not talking about baseball here. Um, and you can t- break them down into fundamental qualities that are used in that sport. Now, <clears throat> in some sports, there's an over one, one particular quality kind of is overwhelming. I mean, I think it's pretty well understood that finger strength is the overriding fundamental quality that helps people climb well. Likewise, if we're looking at uh, ultra distance runners, then aerobic capacity is the overwhelming quality that you know helps them perform. But you can still break these sports down. I mean, that ultra runner needs to have a certain level of strength. That ultra runner needs to have a certain level of anaerobic capacity for their work. And so we can look at these fundamental qualities in all these sports. So with, with climbing, 
and and especially I would say alpine climbing, it's even more complicated than rock climbing because you've got you know mixed modalities, you know, with rock and snow and ice and all that stuff, and mixed. Um, it be and you have to also understand that you know those you're dealing with environmental concerns, whether avalanche hazards, weather, bivouacs. So all of those are kind of qualities of that sport that need to be trained. And I mean, and if one of them sucks, then you're probably never going to perform well. Like you know, if you I mean, there's a great story in training for the new alpinism where these guys were extremely good climbers, but they weren't didn't really have their bivouac very well together when they repeated that they did this climb on Howe's Peak um, in the Canadian Rockies. You know, one of the first things they did on the first bivouac was to drop their stove. Well, Ooh. then you're screwed. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that was an accident, but still, they, they just didn't have their bivy scene totally dialed. You know, they, and so that that meant that suddenly their performance is not going to be what it should. Um, so likewise, you know, if you're taking, you're looking at rock climbing, you can say, okay, there's a, there's the, the finger strength and power component. Then there's the, the, what, what climbers like to call power endurance, like strength endurance, the ability to maintain a high level of force for, you know, many seconds to even sometimes into the realm of a minute. Um, and then there's the low endurance, you know, the, the climbing, the, the kind of the low and in, lower intensity endurance, like what you're going to be, the level of effort that you're using between cruxes, let's say, on a, on a climb. Um, and those would be pretty simple fundamental qualities to that you could break that sport down into. And each one of those has, you know, you, you, tr you have to be trained differently. Like you're not going to improve your finger strength by doing a high volume of low intensity climbing. But that high volume of low intensity climbing is an important quality for you to train. But they're two completely different, um, they, they require different training stimuli and they, you know, they generally, like you pointed out, they could be done in the same workout, um, staggered the way we talked about earlier. But they, like, if you, if you find that finger strength is your, you know, that's the fundamental quality that's keeping you from climbing well. And we haven't even addressed technique. I mean, that's, that's an enormous part of this, you know, the, the, the technique ability, like really great, well, like any great, any good athlete, the athlete has, the better the athlete, the better the, let's say, catalog of movements that they have built into their nervous system. And to the point where, you know, the master doesn't even have to think about the movement that they're going to make. It's so hardwired into their nervous system. They've done this training so many times that they can look up, they see that hold, they know exactly what it's going to feel like, and they know exactly how the body position needs to be, even without really, it never goes into their frontal cortex. They never actually think about it. They just do it, um, which is one of the reasons we enjoy watching masterful athletes in whatever sport is like, whoa, that looks easy. Um, but the these qualities, if, if that's the quality, let's say finger strength, that is your, your weakness, then that's the capacity you need to build right now, because it's what's holding you back from, in, you know, from climbing better, like just doing more volume of low intensity, that's probably not going to make you much better at all. And so, but it takes, you know, to build that capacity takes a very different kind of training session than to build low intensity endurance training. But both of them, you're trying to elevate the capacities of, of, and ideally you want to kind of bring them all up to a, a higher level so that then when you go on this spending spree in the utilization period, you know, you've, you've got plenty of money in the bank. Yeah. So I think it's important to identify those fundamental qualities 
and then try to figure out which one is the one that you suck at. Because it's a whole lot easier to improve something you're not very good at than it is to add, you know, one-tenth of one percent onto something that you're already really good at. Yeah. But most of us like to train the things we're good at right. and not train the things we aren't very good at. Right, right, right. Totally. Um, I'm going to ask a very selfish question here. I know this is not, uh, yeah, I'm going to ask about finger training and I know this is not your area of expertise, but um, what you just said really aligns with um, with my next couple months of training. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on it and then we can get back to your area of expertise and talk more about mountain endurance. But um you basically just described me, you know, finger strength is always my limiting factor in both bouldering and sport climbing. And uh, I am training right now. I just got to St. George. We're talking early March and I'm preparing for a two month training block to then go on a very long bouldering trip. Um, I'm, I get to go to Magic Wood in Switzerland for six weeks. I get to go to Rocklands after that. I'm so excited. And uh, it's interesting. So, you know, my going back to that winter block of training or a couple winter blocks of, of training I've had years ago where I had a really simple um, training focus. I was just training on my home wall a couple days a week, doing some fingerboarding here and there. I mean, it was very structured, but doing fingerboarding like three days a week, weightlifting a couple, you know, two or three days a week. That worked really well for me. But what you said about utilization, I think you're probably right. I was like, you know, I was performing really well on my home wall. And then I went on this week bouldering trip to Bishop and it transferred really, really well. And I had this amazing week of climbing and then I got injured right at the tail end of the trip. I got a finger injury. So I'm curious, can you just maybe further differentiate capacity preparation versus, you know, dipping into utilization too early? I don't want to start spending during this training phase. So what does that look like? Because, you know, I, I got incredible results from just having like, you know, project-oriented board climbing sessions with some max finger training, but was I was I spending already? And and how would I how would you guide me towards making sure that I'm just focusing on the capacity of my finger strength, the capacity of my bouldering power versus uh, make yeah put money in the bank versus spending it. That's what I'm that's what I'm curious about. I mean, let's say you you have a goal right now. You have a kind of a, a mid medium term goal. This this bouldering trip you're going to go on. Um, then, so you want to elevate your capacity as much as you can between now and that trip. But it will be important to actually do utilization training before the trip so that you're, you know, in peak form. Capacity training often doesn't really look like the sport you're training for. And because you're isolating these individual, fun, uh, let's say, these fundamental qualities I was talking about, your I mean, hangboard doesn't really look like climbing. Um, but it's, you know, it's a crucial part of it. So, but whereas utilization training mimics the demands of the sport or the event you're training for as closely as possible. So in your case, you know, your utilization sessions were, they were higher intensity versions of that capacity work, probably, um, you know, they're, or they are more, they're, they're pulling several of these different qualities, these fundamental qualities together into one session. So, you know, if you were in your capacity building, you'd be doing, you know, fingerboard session and other particular work that you're um, focused on in, in different workouts. But then in the utilization phase, you start putting those things together. So they actually start looking more and more like climbing. 
so that then when you go on the climbing trip, your you know your body's fully primed for that. So what I often tell people when you've got a long block of training um, that you want to build capacity and um, and if you're doing or let's say you're starting to do some utilization training, when you see in your training personal bests, you know what they call in running PRs, personal records, um, when you start performing at a peak level during training, that's the time to step back and go back to some more basic fundamental quality work because you're at a level that's new. Maybe it's not new in your whole history of your life, but it's new over the course of, let's say, the past few months. You're at a peak form and you don't want to be at peak form now. You want to be at peak form you know, a month and a half from now when you go on this trip. And you can't maintain a peak form for very long. So when I start seeing athletes putting up best times or best results in something, I say, okay, hold on. You know, we're we need to we're gonna go back. Like again, my world is mostly endurance runners, and I, I coach some very high-level ones. Um, and when I see workouts where they're crushing it and they say, Man, I feel like Superman out there. This was a great, I'm gonna give that workout an A plus rating. I see a couple of those in a week and I said, okay, we're, we're going to, we're backing off. We need to go back to some lower intensity, ba more base work, more fundamental quality type work because you're getting into, you're too good a shape right now. Um, <laughs> wow. And the, the race, the race isn't for two months from now. And I want you to be in peak form then. Um, so that I, you can use that little idea as a, a it's okay. I mean, you. the problem for all of us is those days when you feel like Superman, you just want to crush it, right? And then oh, yeah. you're thinking, oh, I'm, I am so on it. Now I'm going to just do all these really hard workouts because I feel so strong. And that's, so what'll happen then you, you'll either get injured or overtrained or at the, you know, at the very best, you will plateau. And because you just can't maintain, you know, think about it. You're, you're at this peak, your body's never, really never been here before. It kind of needs some time to get used to this new situation. You know, all of our, we're, we're an incredibly complex organism. We have all these systems that we don't really fully understand, but we do know that this is a new place for us. And we need to like, at that point, like, okay, I'm gonna take a couple of steps back and let my body sort of adjust to this rather than thinking that, oh, I'm here. Well, and then the next week I'm going to be even higher. That'd be, that's kind of unrealistic mm. to think that you can go from one peak, you know, let's say this workout you did on Wednesday, and it was a peak experience for you, and to think that you could recreate that or even exceed it in a week or two, that's unrealistic. Mm. Wow, that's such a good nugget, Scott. That's... Uh... That's so good. It's so hard to do that. You know, where my brain always goes is I'm like, oh, I've, I've done it. I've arrived. I'm awesome now. And I just think I get to hang out at this new peak level. Um, how do that's you know? Coach, that's the coach. Excuse me for interrupting. Yeah, it's fine. I have found over, you know, 30 years or more of coaching that that's the, one of the biggest roles a coach can play. Now, if you're self, most people are going to be self-coached and you're, you're right. It, it is really hard to not let, you know, your excitement, your enthusiasm, your ego kind of take, take over. The beauty of a coach is somebody else is looking over your shoulder and seeing this and they're going to say, Stephen, uh -uh, no, not today. We're not doing that today. Um, 
and they take some of that responsibility off of your shoulders. Because if you don't, you know, let's say you're, you're having this great run of, of workouts or climbing sessions and you, you have planned another one for Wednesday or next Wednesday or whatever. Um, it's hard for you not to do that if it's in your training plan because you're a highly motivated person. I mean, I have yet to meet a climber or any of these mountain endurance athletes that aren't type A. Um, so if it says you're supposed to do something on that day, chances are you're going to try your best to do it. And you have to have a lot of discipline to be that person who would say, you know, I'm just not going to do that today. I mean, I, and, and because you're going to, if you tell that to yourself, you're going to feel like, oh, I'm being lazy. I'm being a wuss or whatever. Whereas if the coach tells you, then you can say, oh, I mean, the coach is basically taking that responsibility away from you for that kind of really hard decision. Now, understand that not everybody's going to have a coach. I mean, you know, a small percentage of people will be able to or will want to or be able to use a coach. But that's the reason I've spent so much time writing about this stuff is to try to educate people that, you know, these are the kind of this, the monitoring of, of fatigue, this, this whole Superman phenomenon, which is talking about, if you understand these principles, then you have a better chance of guiding your own training in, you know, in the right direction. Mm. Okay. Uh, yeah. A couple of follow on questions that all makes perfect sense. And yet I'm kind of, my, my brain's like thinking through all these scenarios and stuff. And I'm like, that can be harder Harder to notice. Well, what am I trying to? What am I trying to say? I guess the question is, how do you know how far you can push that, and when you're tapping into that unsustainable peak form? And I'll, and I'll give you examples. So this summer, I was in a training block. I was uh, hanging out in Estes Park, Colorado, and the weather was kind of bad, so I was just in this indoor training block, and I was doing some moonboarding and some finger training and uh, some weightlifting, and I hadn't really lifted compound, I hadn't done like compound weightlifting in a few years, and um, you know, people listening to the podcast will know my story, but I, when I lived at Smith Rock, I was really skinny, and now I'm, I'm heavier, I have more muscle, I feel a lot healthier. And um, I was deadlifting for the first time in a few years. And over the course of three months, um, you know, I think my previous best before that training block was like a single rep at 340. And uh, I just crushed that, went right past that and got all the way up to 405 at the end of those three months and was just seeing steady progress the whole time. But I was kind of programming my training in these like three weeks on, just hitting the deadlift once a week and then I would take a deload week and then I would progress for three and then deload. And it worked out really well, but I, I went way, way past any numbers or level of strength that I had ever seen before. So how do you, how do you know? Like, how do you know when to take those steps back on purpose versus, okay, this is actually working really well. My training's going well, I'm thriving and I can keep progressing it up. I mean, you know, like I, I guess, maybe to answer my own question, when I pulled 405, that that felt like a performance. That felt like a peak performance. And I kind of knew like, I, I probably shouldn't push this any further right now. Like it would, I would have to take, you know, maybe I just took five steps forward. I would have to take four steps back if I wanted to get to 425 and, and do like a whole training block over again. But do you have any additional thoughts there? Yeah, but I think that maybe I would, it wasn't clear uh, or I om omitted something. And that is, when I'm thinking about this capacity building, I'm thinking of it like something you've been training for. Like you were kind of coming off the couch and getting back into deadlifting. Got it. So it's reasonable that you are going to see 
even building your, during your capacity building period, you were going to see performance improvements just because you're kind of starting from zero. Um, but if you've been at it, if you've been deadlifting consistently for you know a year or more, then you know, to see performance gains while you were trying to move from 405 to 425 would be pretty tough um, because you already have a pretty high capacity in that area. Gotcha. So I guess I was just I wasn't clear about that. So that's that's how I would differentiate those those two those two things. So if I had been deadlifting consistently and then had a week where I just like smashed it kind of out of nowhere, that would be the sign like, oh, okay, that was that yeah. was a peak. Let's back off. Let's kind of go back to the fundamentals. Back off a little bit, let my body absorb that. Okay. You know, take a take a couple easy weeks. You know, maybe you drop the the deload, like you said, deload week, or even reduce the the weight on the bar um for a few, couple of two or three weeks. And you know, come back and you'd probably be just as strong again. And then you can start building on that. I mean, that's kind of the concept between uh, that's sort of the, the the theory behind periodization. Like you were, you've talked about, you have three building weeks and then a deload or a recovery week. Then you start in three building weeks. That deload or recovery week, that's when your body's actually going to be making a lot of its adaptations to whatever the stress you applied to it over the previous three weeks is. And then when you start the next building cycle, hopefully, you know, if it's done properly, you're in a little better place fitness wise. So you can build on top of that and you can sustain it. So that's kind of the whole periodization principle, which was developed in the Soviet Union, um, you know, in the 50s, uh, kind of for strength training. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Do you have any thoughts on nonlinear periodization? Um Meaning like, you know, this is something that uh, Steve Bechtel's talked about a lot, noticing that, you know, rock climbing is a lot more complex than, say, Deadlifting. trail running, <laughs> you know, like you, yeah, you yeah. might you might have a sport climb that's 50 meters long where you have to have like near maximal finger strength at the crux 40 meters up or whatever. There's just a lot more happening there. So I think he's moved most of his athletes towards this kind of rotating schedule where you're focusing on some strength, you're focusing on some power, you're focusing on some endurance, and um, you're, you're kind of rotating through those in the course of a week and building on each of them over time versus, you know, classical periodization, traditional, where we're gonna say, let's build our base endurance for a month and then let's switch to strength for a month or whatever it is. Um, do you have thoughts on that? And, and does that depend on the sport? Maybe a little bit depends on the sport, but in, in terms of rock climbing, that kind of periodization is a little bit like what I was talking about, where you're going to focus on one particular one of these fundamental qualities that makes up the sport, let's say on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, there's a different focus on another one of these qualities. So let's say you had a really high high quality session on Tuesday, whether it's, you know, maybe it's campusing or something like that. Well, the next day is probably going to be the quality you're going to focus on is endurance, long, you know, low intensity, longer duration. Um, but I think that type of periodization, again, isn't, that's not un, unusual in, um, in, in endurance sports either. To, to do the same thing. I mean, you might have a, you know, the endurance athlete, their Tuesday is their interval session. They're going to go to the track and they're going to run, you know, 10 400s on the track. Well, the next day is not going to be another interval session. The next day is going to be, you know, addressing a completely different quality than that. So, no, there's a, I think that's very sound. That's a really sound approach to have that type of, of, of you know, it's, that's kind of what we would call periodization on a micro scale as opposed to more the macro scale that we've been talking about. 
Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's super helpful. Um, let's see, where should we go next? So I've been, I've been uh, selfishly pulling you towards my, uh, my side of the street talking about bouldering and sport climbing. Let's get back to your area of, of expertise here. Um, I'm looking at, so, so you and I have emailed back and forth. I have like a few topics that you wanted to make sure that we covered in this conversation and we've talked about some of them, but we can certainly expand on them. Um, let me ask this question and then we can kind of go back into the weeds. How has mountain endurance training changed throughout your career? I'm curious if if anything comes to mind here, but if let's say an alpinist or a trail runner, whoever's listening to this that wants to focus more on the endurance side of mountain endurance sports, whatever their specialty is or their focus is, if they're not doing blank, they're totally blowing it. Does anything come to mind when I ask that? Um, yeah, it does. This is kind of a, this is a softball. <laughs> so that's right. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so any event, I mean, athletic event or physical um, event that lasts more than two minutes is predominantly fueled by the aerobic metabolism. And so e this is why even, you know, sport climber who's climbing a, you know, a, a 20 meter route that's going to probably take more than two minutes. And so that's why having some aerobic endurance qualities built into your training is going to improve it. And the analogy I'll make very quickly, um, people can read about this in training for the uphill athlete. I use a vacuum cleaner analogy. <clears throat> and I'd assume most of your audience is familiar with the fact that we have kind of a spectrum of muscle fiber types from, you know, the most, the, the highest force development fibers, like the fast twitch fibers that you're going to use in things like campusing or, you know, very high force um, activities all the way to the other end. These are the hundred mile um, slow twitch fibers. So the ones that, that just almost never fatigue. They have, so that the, these, the separation of this, and it, it's more of a continuum even though they are artificially broken down into fiber types, there's, you know, type 2A and 2B and all of that stuff. But in general, it's, I mean, it's pretty well understood. It's a, a full continuum. There's no real distinct breaking points. Hmm. But those faster twitch fibers have very poor endurance. They don't have that quality of, of endurance. Otherwise, you'd be able to campus, you know, for an hour and a half and it, you know, continuously. Whereas the slow twitch fibers have all kinds of endurance, but they don't have, they don't produce as high of forces. And, now, the, the metabolism that fuels the slow-twitch fibers is almost 100% aerobic. And I'm not going to go into the physiology of all this, but take my word for that. The faster-twitch fibers, their, their energy production comes exclusively from the anaerobic metabolic process. Now, you know what the burn feels like. Every climber knows what a, that burn in the forearms feels like. Well, that is... a byproduct of this anaerobic metabolism, that burn. Um, people call it lactic acid. Well, lactic acid really doesn't exist, you know, in your body it, because like any acid, it immediately dissociates into, you know, the, the, the hydrogen ion leaves because it's in water. So it immediately dissociates into a hydrogen ion, which is the acidic part and a lactate molecule. And it's that acidic part that, I mean, I don't know that it actually makes the burn feel, but as that acidity increases in the muscle cell, that energy process, the, ana the anaerobic metabolic process, it's a negative feedback and it begins to slow down. The reason your fingers fail is that 
the energy production mechanism, this anaerobic metabolism in those muscle fibers that's allowing you to hang on to that tiny little edge, it begins to shut down and it stops producing that uh, that ATP, the energy molecule. And then, you know, eventually that's fatigue and you fall off. Well, turns out that these slower twitch fibers, they don't have to be all the way down to the 100 mile, you know, ultra endurance level, but the slower twitch fibers, the ones that have more aerobic qualities to them, they like to take up that lactic acid essentially and utilize it as fuel. So they will, they act like a big vacuum cleaner mm. to suck up these metabolic byproducts that are causing the glycolytic or the anaerobic metabolic process to just kind of grind to a halt. And then your hand, your hand opens up when that happens, you fall off. So this vacuum cleaner that even though it's not sports specific to climbing hard, it acts as a support for climbing hard because it can take up these negative, you know, these I don't want to call them, you know, they're, they're kind of not nasty byproducts, but these are byproducts of this metabolism that's allowing you to hang on to that little edge. They can take up those metabolic waste products and use them. So the bigger that vacuum cleaner is, the more of that stuff you can suck up, more of these um, waste products you can take away, and the longer you're going to be able to hold on. That's in, And that improves your endurance. So the, um, by, so, Understanding that endurance or the, or the aerobic metabolism in muscle cells plays an enormous role, even for, <clears throat> for very high intensity activities, mm. is, is an important thing to get. Now, obviously, having high aerobic capacity in your legs from running a lot isn't going to probably, not going not to help at all the aerobic capacity of the muscles in your forearms because it's the it's those muscles that are adjacent you know right next to where these metabolic waste products are being produced those waste products get shuttled over to these muscle fibers that have more endurance and then they get used so they're being put actually put to use you know they, they, so these waste products are beneficial if they're in the slow twitch fibers and they're detrimental if you're in the fast switch fiber. So having developing this shuttling mechanism, that's what you do, for instance, when you are doing like four by fours or any sort of high intensity um, work that involves a rest period. So you, you, you're climbing, you're climbing hard enough, or you let's say fingerboard session, you're working those muscles hard enough that they get to a state of fatigue and you have, then you stop and you let them rest and recover. Right. And then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. That builds endurance. Well, what's happening is that's improving this shuttling mechanism that takes the so metabolic waste products out of where they're being produced and moves them over to the vacuum cleaner where they can be taken away and used usefully. Mm. And so <clears throat> I guess that this point that I think that people should take away is that the training the you know training at low intensity is is also very important for any of these sports because and and I mean, it doesn't have to mean that if you're a 514 climber, that your low intensity sessions are going to be on 5.6. That's not what that means. It means your low intensity sessions may be on 5.12 because you're going to have a, a group of muscle fibers that get recruited for 5.6 climbing. And they're going to be mostly very slow twitch fibers for an accomplished climber. And as you move up the, the grading scale, you're going to be recruiting faster and faster twitch fibers because the client, you know, you need more strength for those movements, but 
each layer of those fibers, let's make a very, again, a model here that's a very artificial construct. Let's say we have these layers of muscle fibers that get recruited at, you know, 5'6", 5'7", 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", 12. And as we go up the scale, those fibers get more and more forceful, more and more powerful, but have less and less endurance. And so when the, when the 5'13 climber <clears throat> wants to train for endurance, they're not going to train at 5'8". They're going to be training at, you know, 5'11 and 5'12 range because those are the fibers that are going to act as the vacuum cleaner for those 5'13 fibers that are produced. <clears throat> okay. So that's kind of a takeaway here that, um, that I think is important for the rock climbing world to, to understand. Again, that comes from, you know, this is how, this is how it works for endurance training. Um, and, and all sports, I mean, well, maybe not, you know, two move boulder problems, but you know, most sports are going to last, uh, most sporting events or most are going to last more than a couple minutes. So they have an endurance component in them. And it's important to understand why, how you train that endurance. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about what sort, like how that actually plays out in the real world, what sort of endurance training different types of athletes should be doing to support their higher intensity training. Let's, uh, let's take a boulderer, a sport climber, and then maybe we can shift over and talk about like a runner, maybe an alpinist. Uh, but for a boulderer, someone who's focused, in, focused on, you know, kind of hanging out in that creatine phosphate glycolytic uh, zone, is it still relevant? And, and what would that look like for someone whose main priority is power, high intensity, short duration? Uh, what would endurance training look like for that person? But it is important, not necessarily in the performance of their event, because as you said, it, you know, their their boulder problem is going to last you know just a few seconds most of the time, and as and as a consequence, they're able to tap into the stored ATP or the creatine phosphate that's stored in the muscle cell for energy. They don't even have to go into you know their true anaerobic metabolism, um, you know, unless it starts lasting more than let's say thirty seconds or so, um, but. That creatine phosphate that we were just you were mentioning, that, or the stored ATP in the muscle cell that allows them to pull hard, how does that get regenerated in those muscle cells between boulder problems? It gets regenerated by the aerobic metabolism. So the more aerobic capacity you have, the quicker those energy stores will be replenished. And the sooner you will recover between, let's say, hard boulder problems or even from day-to-day -day training sessions. So this was something that was understood by the Soviets in, you know, back when this whole the periodization and this kind of science of training came, started to be studied a little more, was that their Olympic-style lifters did aerobic training because it helped them recover between not only intra-workouts, but inter-workouts. And I think it's the same, you know, as you know, those are maximal effort type of movements um, with usually, you know, one or just two or three reps. Um, so even for somebody like a boulderer, it can be helpful to have an endurance, a, a little bit of an endurance base. Now for them, the, that endurance base is going to be, you know, climbing some volume at, you know, I don't know. I'm not that familiar with bouldering grades, but again, I could we can think about it in terms of rock climbing grades. They're going to be climbing a couple of two or three grades lower, but doing a high, a bit higher volume. Now that can be done. It can't be done continuously when it's at that high intensity. Like you know, you're not going to be able to climb five twelve 
let's say you're the, that 512, 13 climber who wants to have improved this aerobic support that's just below those 513 fibers, you can't get on a climb, you can't climb 512 for an hour and a half. Right. It's you know, probably not going to happen. So you're going to have to do that in more of an interval protocol, which is why intervals were invented, actually. But so you might get on and you might do, let's say, you know, five, four minute sessions of 512. Okay. You know, five minutes of climbing five of, of or five or four, four or five minutes of climbing 512, then a full recovery between, and then, you know, enough of a recovery that you can repeat that work bout, that four minute work bout a few times to get the full benefit. Because if you don't take enough recovery, then that 512 work bout, maybe the first two repetitions, the first two intervals you do, they're going to be at 512. And the next one's going to be 511. And the next one's going to be 510. So you'd stop training those fibers you were really hoping to train for endurance because you didn't recover well enough. You know, you didn't have, you know, you didn't. So even, and it doesn't really, the recovery period doesn't really matter that long, not that much. You know, if, if let's say what I often do when people are doing intervals is, yeah, they, they get through the first two or three at the, the appropriate intensity. And then their intensity begins to drop off. And so they're no longer getting the training effect that I or they are looking for. I'll say, okay, let's double the recovery time this time and see mm. what happens. Wow. And if they can't repeat, if they can't do it at that in, the, the, the intensity we were targeting, then they started too hard. Okay. They, they're, those first two or three were too high intensity for them. They don't, they don't have the aerobic work capacity to, to, to handle that much work. So they would need to take a step they would either let's say let's say okay you can't climb five four minute five twelves so instead we're gonna we're gonna drop down and do you know eleven c we're gonna do these at a, a little bit lower grade um, and then we're gonna build that but it, and those will then support those twelve a fibers which you know then go on to help support the higher and higher level fibers oh, that's really interesting I've never thought of endurance training and supporting your endurance in this kind of tiered way that you're describing it it's kind of it's kind of different um kind of a different paradigm than i've thought about it i've always thought you know talking about the sport climber if you're climbing 513 obviously trying 512s and 513 is going to train that you know um i guess power endurance i know that's not really yep. technically um the right way of saying it but um that more glycolytic short-term endurance versus you know arcing going back to that i would think even even for me you know if i'm trying to climb like 13c or whatever um if i want to have a really high quality arcing session it needs to be kind of dead easy you know like 510 511 maybe mm -hmm. um yeah. but it sounds like there's kind of these uh, these other tiers of supporting yes this yeah, vacuum you're, you're process that you're, you're you're nailing it okay. so yeah not every session let's say not every one of these let's aerobic support sessions that are that are trying to support that 13c level not every one of them can be at you know 13a or 12d you know they, they can't be that hard i mean runners don't do these interval sessions you know four days a week it just can't nobody could handle that uh. but they do so in between let's say you do one of those um endurance sessions that we were just talking about you know five by four minutes whatever something like that that may only happen once a week or, and I found good results of that kind of training at once every 10 days. But in between, there's a lot more of that arcing type work. 
that's you know because remember i mentioned that this that aerobic metabolism seems to have some kind of magical restorative effect on the body so that helps you recover and prepare for the next you know more taxing session mm. so you know you you have the well, if you're training endurance you know then you, and you want this support mechanism we've been talking about that's just below your 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 maximum you just can't go there very often mm. and it, and you need to be re- well recovered for that so that would be that kind of thing you wouldn't want to go to the gym after a day of ski touring and try to do one of those workouts you got would it definitely work well mm-hmm. you would be glycogen depleted probably from your long ski as well as kind of your, your nervous system would be would be turned down so and we will be right back this episode is brought to you by rumple my rumple blanket is literally one of my favorite things i own it's so cozy it's like having the coziness of a puffy sleeping bag with you wherever you go Check out this story. On a surf and ski trip through California, the founders of Rumpel got stuck in the back of their car in freezing temperatures and had to bundle in their sleeping bags and sip whiskey to stay warm while they waited for rescue. Cozy and warm in their sleeping bags, they realized they were even cozier than they typically were in their beds at home. The idea for a sleeping bag blanket was born. Rumpel's original puffy blanket is made of the same materials as your favorite outdoor gear. It pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a durable water-repellent finish, so it's water-resistant, stain-resistant, and odor-resistant. This thing is the best. As I said, it's the coziest blanket you could ask for. Perfect for staying warm at the boulders or at the crag. Great for camping. I have one in my van and use it all the time. And just great to have around the house. It'll be your new favorite blanket, full stop, whatever the circumstances. Go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout to get 10% off your order. That's 10% off your first order when you go to rumple.com slash nugget and use code nugget at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Rocky Talkie. I love these things. I never thought I'd go back to using radios in the year 2023, but these things are awesome. Here's the deal. We all have phones, but sometimes phones aren't very helpful. Let's say you're climbing a multi-pitch or you're backcountry skiing or sitting on a chairlift and you don't want to drop your phone in the snow or you're mountain biking and it's a pain to stop and get your phone out or you just don't have service. Phones are not always the best option. The best way to communicate in the backcountry is with Rocky Talkies. I've actually been using these for bouldering. I often record interviews in the morning and I go climbing in the afternoon and I wanna meet up with my friends and the Rocky Talkies have been awesome when I don't have cell reception. The max range on these things is 25 miles and they typically work up to one to five miles in the mountains and backcountry terrain. I haven't tested the range on these things, but so far they've always worked with zero issues, even in rocky areas like Waco. I've never had a problem. So check them out. Get 10% off your first pair of Rocky Talkies by going to rockytalkie.com slash nugget. That's rockytalkie.com slash nugget for 10% off your first order of backcountry radios. And now back to the show. 
I'm glad uh, I'm glad we made our way back here to active recovery. I was going to say earlier that I'm planning to do a whole conversation about active recovery for climbers with Steve Bechtel um, mm-hmm. and go into the weeds on this stuff because I think a really common trap is to do too much or do too high intensity in, in the name of active rest, you know? Um, yeah. Climbers are just notoriously bad at that. We just go out thinking that we can, you know, like, oh, I'm a 513 climber. I can climb a handful of 12 A's and call it an active rest day. And it's like, no, it's not an active rest day. It's, yeah. so, it's maybe doing something, but it's somewhere in between. So anyway, um, and, and similarly, like you said earlier, um, you know, running I'm sure has some cardiovascular benefits for climbing, but it sounds like a lot of this stuff is very muscle specific, muscular endurance specific. And it's, it's those specific, especially at a, at a high level, at okay. a higher, the higher the level. I mean, if, if you're a, a brand new beginning climber, you know, and you're trying to move from five, seven to five, eight, well, almost any kind of strength and endurance training you do will probably benefit you. But the higher the level you get, the more specific the training starts needs to start looking like. Mm. So, like for instance, you know, if, if you're one of those beginning climbers and you can't do a pull up, well, then doing a general strength exercise like pull ups will probably improve your climbing in most cases. Um, you know, it's, it's like the the people who are couch potatoes. Then doesn't matter whether they are on an elliptical machine or walking around the block or swimming or riding a bicycle. Any of those things because they're at such a low level, will improve them. But if you're training for the Olympic marathon, getting a swimming pool is not going to make you any better. Mm. So the more, the better the athlete, the more specific the training and the higher the volume of that specific training um, that they need to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. But yeah, I think covering, re- do, talking about recovery is really important because it's something that most of us don't do enough of. But what's important to understand is that training makes you worse, makes you weaker. It's the recovery period where you actually get stronger because that's the period when your body is adapting to this stress that you've applied to it. And different types of stress require different types, amounts and types of, or not amounts, excuse me, not types, but amounts of recovery. For instance, a maximum, it's generally considered like a max strength effort in in lifting. It's going to take a minimum of 72 days. So, excuse me, 72 hours to recover from. To before you before you get a super compensation effect and actually are prepared for the next bout of that. Yeah. Whereas you, know, you can pretty much arc every day. You know, that kind of thing. You low intensity aerobic work, you will pr- recover within a few hours to 24 hours. So you can just repeat this over and over and over. And then there's the whole spectrum in between there um, of how long it takes to recover from these different sessions. But I think it's important to understand that that the that recovery is when the adaptations take place. They don't take place during the workout. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, well, let me ask you, I'm curious if you have if you have thoughts on this, you know, maybe t- pick whatever sport you want, pick trail running, pick alpine climbing. Um, how do you think about active recovery versus just laying down on the couch and watching TV until you're ready for another session? What What is the importance of doing something active and how do you think about that with uh, with the clients that you coach? Well, I think active recovery is better unless you're utterly wasted or sick. I think in, you know lying on the couch, it feels good, um, but it won't probably speed the recovery. The point of re- these recovery sessions is to prepare to to quickly to return you back to a place where you can start training again as soon as possible. 
And there's a million different ways of doing this. But low, as we know, as I've said before, low intensity aerobic work is a, is a good way to do that. So this would be something that's very non-sport specific. So for the climber, yeah, maybe going for an, a walk or an easy jog or a bike ride in low intensity, that would be probably a helpful recovery session for them. Likewise, for the mountain, the runner's side coach, they don't want to do running as low in you know, their recovery sessions because their legs are already kind of pounded on. So we'll switch to like a non-weight-bearing activity, like cycling. Um, swimming is an, an incredibly good recovery activity for almost every sport because your body's horizontal, so your heart doesn't have to work as hard to circulate the blood, but you're very actively moving you know, pretty much every, every joint in your body, and you're being cooled by the water. Mm. And so there, it's a, it's a great recovery activity. I mean, I'm not talking about going in and, and, and doing a swimming workout. I'm just talking about... I mean, even if you can't swim, I mean, I've had runners who, when I tell them, I want you to go to the pool, they go, oh, I can't swim. Well, hang on the side and flutter kick for 20 minutes. I don't care what you do, but just get in the pool, horizontal move. Um, and I think that's beneficial. But of course, there's all kinds of devices on the market that, you know, speed recovery. Um, I think with with activities that are very muscle intense, um, that massage you know, massage is a great tool. Now, most of us aren't going to be able to afford to get a, someone else to massage our legs or, or forearms um, every day. But, you know, there's, you know, everything from, you know, e-stim machines to like the Theragun or any other those kind of devices that do tend to help circulate the blood through the muscles and flush out stuff. That, you know, they tend to break up adhesions in, in the fascia. Um so there's a lot of tools that can be used for for recovery, for active recovery. But in general, I would rate an active recovery session way above a sedentary recovery. That's great. Yeah, that's super valuable. Let's uh, let's geek out and talk about tech. Um, you you talked earlier about monitoring your training and recovery and how important that is. I live in a van. Obviously, I have a pretty simple setup here, and um, I've tried some some techie recovery monitoring tools. I tried a, a whoop strap for a couple years or yeah, for about a year and it was somewhat informative, but I found that for rock climbing, I, it seems like that would be something that would work really well for just an, an endurance sport, you know, like trail running or, or Nordic or schema or something like that. Whereas rock climbing, I felt like there wasn't great crossover between my recovery score and how I actually felt when I went to the gym. So I just started, I kind of went back to intuition and and that seemed to work better for me. I don't know why, maybe that's because of like the more strength power focus or, you know, finger strength being such a kind of localized specific thing that's maybe not captured by your HRV in the morning or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, do you, do you uh, like any techie uh, measuring tools? Are those a big part of your training with your athletes? And uh hey. They aren't. Um, they aren't. I wish okay. they were. I mean, I adopted HRV training 20 years ago when I was coaching Olympic skiers. And I tried it and it failed. It did not produce the kind of results. And I'll explain why. Um, and I'll explain why I think it's a bit of an issue is that so the the HRV, um, as you know, there's usually well, there's some technologies now that kind of captured the HRV while you're not even noticing it. But to really work well, you kind of need to perform a test. 
on yourself. And it usually involves, you know, lying down for a few minutes and measuring your HRV. Then, and as people that don't, that's heart rate variability for people that don't know. And because you're the interbeat time um, spacing isn't the same. So if your heart rate's beating 60 beats per minute, it's not beating exactly every second. There's a variation in that, and that's called heart rate variability. And it turns out the fitter you are, the more rested you are, the higher that variability is, which sounds a little you know, counterintuitive. counterintuitive right. And the, the lower the heart rate variability, the closer you are to that every second heart rate beat, um, the the more fit, probably the more fatigued or potentially sick or just generally out of shape you're going to be. Can I expand on that um, real quick? An analogy I really like is it's like a metronome. Basically, the the less metronome-like your heart is, the fitter or the more rested you are. If it's more like a metronome and very, very consistent, that means you're probably still fatigued from your last workout. That's that's a great way of describing it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, what I have found, and I've read a number, I mean, this technology would be a, an incredible, would be a godsend for coaches and athletes if it really, really was 100% accurate. And I'll, so most of that technology comes from one company uh, that provides that, the, the, the chips and whatnot that are used in all these watches. And it was developed by a really super knowledgeable Finnish exercise physiologist. Well, I started using that technology that he produced in the, um, back in the 90s, no, I guess in the yeah, 90s, early 2000s um, with some skiers. And what we found was in that case, you had to actually lie down for a few minutes and see what your heart rate variability was. And you had to do it in the same, the same time, the same state of, you know, so typically people would do it in the morning. And then it gives you that recovery score, like you're talking about. Well, because it's measuring heart rate variability, which is a measurement, I mean, it is a reflection of the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems in your body, your thought process, your thinking was going to affect that. So if you're a little nervous about this, like, oh man, I sure hope I get a good score because we have <laughs> supposed to have a hard workout today. I really want to feel good. That anxiety will just completely freak out the, the app. Oh, it will wow. not be, it'll just send your, your heart rate, you know, it'll, it's going to change that balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic systems. It kind of controls where your heart rate is. So that's its big flaw, in my opinion, is that your psychological state will affect the result. Now, there are some that you can wear overnight that, you know, measure it when you're, you hopefully aren't anxious um, because you're sleeping. And I saw that technology used by, at, with a, well, a world champion skier, in fact, um, where on the day that she got, um, you know, she couldn't see the results. Only the coach could see the results of her heart rate variability test. So it was just to take that anxiety component out. And on the day that basically her recovery score was terrible, giant red flag, like, don't even get out of bed today. It sucks. She won a World Cup race that day. Wow. Yeah. And so it's, 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 I would say heart rate variability has um, a, a correlation to reality of about 0.9. It's incredibly high. I mean, 90%. 90% of the time, it's going to be right on the money. But as if you try to use it, as a tool to predict whether you should trade that day or rest that day, 
it needs to be 100% accurate mm. because otherwise, you know, sometimes it will err on the wrong side. Sometimes it'll be overly optimistic or overly conservative. And you don't know what it is on any given day, whether it's perfect or one of these other two things. So I'm a big, I'm a low tech guy. I believe even though, and so I've experimented with HRV for years and finally abandoned it, decided it just wasn't the right tool that, it's better to have the athlete tune in to their body because we are phenomenally sensitive. Um, you know, in all regards, you know, tactically, we're incredibly sensitive. And, you know, we have this capability, but most of us never really tune into the, you know, this, like, how do I feel today? Am I ready? Um, and I think you're going back to your intuition. That's sort of where I have gravitated back towards. And I've, I've written about this, some articles on the website, but, one very simple test you can do is that thing I talked about is just go hang on the hangboard for a few minutes and you're going to, you're going to know, I mean, do a few repetitions or a few, you know, a few seconds and you're going to know, okay, I'm, I'm fired up. I'm ready to go today or I need a rest. And especially if you do it over a, a long period of time, if you do it, do some kind of a test. So when I was a young ski racer, one of the U.S. ski team physiologists explained this test to me for monitoring fatigue. And that was that in the morning, we would step up and down off of like, a, a, it could be a stair step, eight inch stair step, just enough to elevate our heart rate. You know, maybe you get your heart rate, you know, up to 100 or 110, doesn't matter, but a very low level stress on the nervous system by stepping up and down on this stair for you know a couple of minutes. Then immediately, like we would, you have to do the test consistently. It doesn't matter how long you're stepping up and down, but Every time you do the test needs to be the same. Mm. So let's say we step up and down for two minutes. We get up to 110 heart rate. Then immediately we sit down and measure our heart rate a one minute later. How fast did it drop? Because that tells us, again, the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So let's say we get to 110 and a minute later, you know, it's 95. And, you know, whereas our typical day would be down to 65, mm. you know, then we go, okay, I'm tired today. And, and, and I didn't, but it, it applied very little stress to my body. So I didn't, it wasn't even like I had to go out and do a hard workout to find out I was tired. Um, and so I would know that day, okay, I'm just going to go do a very low intensity work, um, work session. So I'm thinking about this hangboard thing. I was just talking to you. That's I'm taking that stepping up and down on the box to a sport that's more, you know, power oriented and saying, okay, we'll test your high power, see how much power you've got on that day. And if it if it's not good, then you dial down the training that mm. day and recover. So I'm like I said, I'm I've gravitated more and more towards simple low tech stuff. I wish heart rate variability was hundred percent perfect because I'd be one of the first people. I think I was one of the early adopters, but I I'd jump on that bandwagon really quickly because it would take make my life and job a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. People actually know it might put me out of work. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I mean, low tech is great news because it's cheaper for everybody listening and uh, everyone has access to their own intuition. Um, yeah, I, I love that. I think there's so much value in learning to be in tune with your body. I mean, I was someone, I, I'm an engineer as well, and I was someone who was very, very good, still am very, very good at following the plan. You know, even if it's a plan that I made up in an afternoon, I'm like, nope, it's, I wrote it down. I put some thought behind it. It makes logical sense. I'm sticking to it. And uh, a huge shift for me, a huge learning has been learning to let go, learning to pivot, 
when the plan doesn't match how I feel and being more in tune with how I feel. I think that's infinitely valuable. And it's something that comes up again and again with the athletes that I talk to, the top level climbers, they all they all seem to be really in tune with their bodies and willing to pivot. Um, for the geeks out there that like the numbers, I will share one thing. I, uh, I talked about this with Tyler Nelson recently, but I've been using the tin deck, which is a little force gauge that you can attach to a hangboard implement, like a, like a tension block or a frictitious board or whatever. And uh, I've been doing a lot of my finger training over the last couple of months, just using this tin deck and just doing active finger flexion. And you see the, you know, you see the numbers go up, your Bluetooth with your phone, you just watch the little force gauge go up. And uh, that has been incredibly eye-opening because, you know, I do the same warm-up and then the same few hard pulls before I go bouldering out in Waco. And uh, you really see the change day-to-day. There's some days where I'm almost like, is my phone working? Like, is this working correctly? You know, it's like, it's really hard to hit this number that I normally hit pretty casually. And it's like, oh, yeah, I guess my fingers haven't recovered from the last session yet. So, um if you're someone who likes the numbers, I, th- I think that's a really good tool. And actually, those guys gave me a discount. I think it's code Nugget, and you'll get 10% off if you get a um, if you get a Tin Deck Progressor. I recommend the Progressor 150 for finger training. But I'll put the and link to it in case, the show notes. But but yeah, go ahead. But that that thing is measuring performance. For the heart rate variability test, is measuring a proxy for your recovery state mm. is measuring the variability, which may or may not, as we've said, may or may not re- actively reflect your current state. Whereas the test that you're doing, the one test, the test that I've talked about, they're actually measuring your performance. You know, like, are you truly ready? We're not look, talking about a proxy anymore. And so I think that's one of the reasons these tool, these kind of tools are incredibly useful. And especially if on that day, you can start to correlate your real climbing performance with the numbers you saw in the test because then you're going to say like maybe you don't even have to go climbing (laughs) maybe the number's low enough you go oh i know the last time i went climbing when i had this kind of a score it was not a very good day i should go do something else um you know then not rather because if you try to train before your body's appropriately recovered so that it can absorb that new stress you're giving it that's when you get into plateaus and overtraining. Mm. And you know it's important to so it is important to monitor recovery, uh, however you choose to do it. Awesome. Um, i'm I'm curious about, yeah, that brings an interesting question to mind because part of your job is training people not only to be physically prepared for the thing that they want to go do, but to be mentally prepared for the thing that they want to go do. Um, I connected with you through Chris Wright, who's a mountain athlete. He's been on the podcast. He was my second interview, episode number two. I doubt most of you have gone back and listened to that one, but it's great. We talked about uh, his his uh, team first ascent of Linksar, uh, 7,000 meter peak. And uh, it was incredible. It's so, so outside of my world. It was fascinating to listen to. But part of that sort of thing, whether it's a big trail running event or a mountain climb, alpinism climb, whatever, it's um, mental toughness and and being able to push through when you're, you know, running out of food and water and you have to get to the summit before the weather changes or, or before it gets too late and you have to turn around, whatever it is. How do you balance that with what you're talking about? How do you balance that mental toughness and overloading what an athlete thinks that they that they can do to train that kind of deeper mental capacity and physical capacity? How do you balance that with 
not overtraining them, with not putting training on them that isn't appropriate based on their recovery state. Seems like those are almost like diametrically opposed or... or um, for me, they go hand in hand. And okay. I'll explain why. But first, I want to say, hi, Chris. Um, hope your legs do getting better. Um, yeah. So actually, I did give Chris a little help um, with his training before the Linksar climb. And um, one of our other coaches worked with Graham Zimmerman, who was on that climb, to kind of help him prep for it. So we've got a little, you know, we're, we're proud of those guys for, for that climb. That's awesome. Um, anyway, back to your question. Um, I believe that proper training prepares the athlete mentally for what they're going to do by building confidence. So, and that's just one of the reasons I'm, I'm in favor of um, not only, you know, the, the controlling or the monitoring of, of recovery, but monitoring uh, gains, monitoring improvements, keeping track. And I think climbers in general, a bit that's, it's understood that when you go into the gym to do a workout, you're going to carry a little notebook and you're going to write down how many reps and sets and all that kind of stuff like weightlifters do because that's going to help you understand if you're improving. And so what I've done and, and if training is working, you should see improvement. Now may it's not a it's not a nice smooth linear line that gets you, know, you to get um, better in a linear way. It's a jagged, you know, some days are good, some days are not so good. You may actually fall back for a day or two where you're, you know, feeling like shit and then have to then you'll pull yourself together and but over the course of, of of on a weekly scale or you know several weekly scale you should see improvement if your training is working so what i've done with the endurance athletes i work with and i think this would be fairly easy to do with climbers is that we build certain workouts that are very structured you know let's say it's an interval running interval session then you know we're going to control the warm up i'm going to measure blood lactates we're going to measure heart rate we're going to measure pace we're going to do all these metrics and then then the workout will progress it progress over many weeks and some of these progressions i do are 10 or 12 weeks long and as the athlete does them and, and if, if the training is going well and the adaptations are occurring they're going to be able to handle this progressively harder and harder work session over these course and and that oftentimes that first workout of this progression we do they get done and they go oh my god there's no way i can do this again it was so hard mm. and by the 12th session they're doing much harder faster more work in a shorter amount of time and they're recovering faster if the training goes well they can do that well that athlete now has been building not only the physical fitness but the mental um confidence is like man i am getting stronger fitter faster whatever it is and so when they go into the the utilization phase let's call it you know, when they, they go to that competition or in this case you know you go on your climbing trip if you know that you're fitter than you've ever been um and you're well prepared for whatever that event is you're going to be mentally stronger mm. you're going because you're going to be confident and so if over the course of many many weeks we can improve the athlete's confidence and it's not just the confidence it's not some sort of by confidence i don't mean some attaboy hey man you're doing a great job kind of confidence i mean actually seeing these numbers improve then you're going to be in so much better mental place than somebody's going who goes into their event with doubt mm. Um, so even on a long alpine climb, like if, if you know you've prepared well and, you know, 
things go bad and you're going to have to, you know, you have to climb through the night or whatever it is, you know, okay, I know I have the fitness base for this. I can handle this. Or I've got the experience. I've dealt with these kind of avalanche conditions before. I've dealt with this level of fatigue. I have, I've dealt with, you know, days where I, or climbs where I didn't eat for three days. We didn't have any food. And I know how that feels. So I'm, I've prepared myself for that. Then you're, you're going to have a better opportunity to succeed and, so rather than think of it, I don't think of it as mental toughness. I just think of it as preparedness, you know, mm-hmm. knowing that you're prepared for that. And you, the way you prepare yourself is through experience, but also through knowing that, you know, what you've done to prepare, it has put you in the place you need to be for that event. And uh, maybe it's my engineering brain rather than I don't have the very, that left side of the brain thing work. I mean, right side of the brain thing working very well i'm a little dyslexic too um but that (laughs) right side of the brain doesn't doesn't compute for me so when people start talking about fuzzy you know touchy-feely ideas like mental toughness i go i don't i don't i honestly i don't know how you would train that Mm. i don't really know tricks or or ways that you would do that without the exposures that we've been you know these physical exposures i've been talking about Right. It's not quantified. It's not as tangible. You can't measure it. You can't progress it. It's just kind of this more vague, ambiguous idea. I mean, it could be, I'm sure there are people that know how to do it. I'm just not one of them. Right. Okay. Yeah. How do you train, how do you prepare for all the other stuff that you just mentioned? I mean, we've been talking about physical training in this conversation and, um, I have, I have a funny little anecdote from Chris that I think I'll share in a second. But when it comes to, you know, I know what it's like to be on a climb and have not eaten in three days. I know what it's like to be in scary avalanche conditions. What does your preparation look like with your athletes? Is it just, you know, graduating, graduating their uh, exposure to more risky situations in a somewhat controlled way? Is it, is it planning, you know, if they have some big audacious goal, are you getting together with them and kind of uh, strategically planning out sub goals that are similar, um, expose them to some of those components. Yeah. How do you think about all, all of that less physical, more experiential stuff? That, that second way. Um, so we often get people who are relatively new to climbing and, you know, mountaineering, especially, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of mountains you can climb in the world that only really involve putting one foot in front of the other. And so there's there's very little technical skills involved. I mean, obviously, someone who has those technical skills is going to move better in alpine terrain. But, you know, you know, climbing a non-technical mountain doesn't really require very much technical training, um, which is why it's become so popular. These, this whole explosion in the guiding of, of big mountains is because of that, you know, there's kind of a low, very low barrier to entry into that world now, but nonetheless, there, there should be some preparation and many of the, most of the, I would say all the good guide services, they will, they're not going to take you to Mount Everest if you've never had crampons on. So they're going to require, you know, these, these sort of what we call intermediate goals, like you were talking about sub goals. So that you can gain some experience, because you know, in, the, in many of these cases, these people don't even know what they don't know. They don't even know that the, they need to understand these things. So what we'll try to do is with people who are, are are relatively new, or even if they're not new and they've got some big aspirations, high level goal, is help them plan out 
um, these intermediate st- series of intermediate goals. You know that that will allow, each step of that is going to give them experience and get co- again confidence that oh yeah I can actually do this. So that by the time they're ready to go to whatever that primary goal is, they're going to go to it again with that confidence level that okay I think I can handle this. Um, but it's yeah you're right it's it, it is an intermediate thing. I mean you didn't start climbing five thirteen. I mean you started right. somewhere much easier grade. And so as you build experience and and I mean obviously there's a huge fitness component. But as you get experience and confidence, you moved up that scale. And it's it's the same idea, but at a lower technical level and uh, you know and at a longer time scale basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay, I'm going to share this anecdote from Chris Wright. He was, I have a handful of bullet points from him. And I, I'll check in with you, actually. How are you feeling about time? I've taken a lot of your time so far. How are you feeling? I think I'm good. I Let me double double check here. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good for until for a couple more hours, but I don't have to, probably have to pee before that anyway. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to go for a couple more hours, but I've got a couple great bullets from, from Chris, and then maybe we can start wrapping up here. Um, but yeah, he wrote me about your muscular endurance workouts, i.e. the dreaded water carries. And he writes that, uh, talking about you, Scott, he writes, he used to prescribe these absolutely fucking brutal muscular endurance workouts where you'd have to carry... Uh, you'd have to do laps carrying massive amounts of weight straight up and down the hill at Burma Road while wearing mountain boots. They were just masochistic. And uh, I kind of laughed at that because, you know, I lived at Smith Rock for a long time. I know Burma Road and it's it's brutal. It's like blazing in the sun. It's just this consistent, you know, uh, grade and, and there's kind of no reprieve from it. But he said eventually you phase them out in favor of a more home-based circuit that involves weight vests. Uh, box step ups, split lunges, and a few other exercises that seem to have the same effect. And and uh, he said that he did those before links are, and he concurs that they worked really well. What did you learn from from that process? You know, starting out with the dreaded water carries and that kind of mm-hmm. brutal workout, and then pivoting it. Why did you pivot? What were you noticing? What was the result? I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So let me define this a little bit. So muscular endurance, it it, it on the on the short duration end of it can easily be called power endurance which is how kind of why it has that name with climbers but when we're talking on you know multi many many minutes to you know hours long then people call it either strength endurance or muscular endurance and it's the ability to produce a high percentage of the maximum force for a long time that's that's essentially you know and and the shorter the duration the higher that percentage is going to be, but the shorter the time. The the longer the duration, like what Chris was doing, you know, when it lasts, you know, he wasn't actually hiking up Burma Road. There's a there's a, a fall line trail that I used to use when I lived there um, that goes straight up. I mean, it's okay. really great. <laughs> yeah. But and it starts down at the at the canal, so you can fill the water jugs there, carry them up, <clears throat> dump them out, come down. Because the, actually, the the grade of the road isn't steep enough to Got get it. this effect. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, so I'll explain that in a second too. But anyway, when you get into these longer durations like that, that thing takes about you know between eighteen or twenty minutes to climb this. So many, many minutes at, it's going to be a lower percentage of your maximum strength, but it's held on for longer. So this is what we call muscular endurance or, you know, again, power endurance is another good way to describe it. But it is often, and especially in a climb, like, you know, from climbing, excuse me, in a sport like climbing, it is the limiting factor for you. It is why you fall off. 
Okay, well, it turns out it's the same darn thing in longer duration endurance sports. The single biggest limiter to how, let's say, how fast you can run for how long or how how fast Chris can climb up a hill is local muscular fatigue. It's not the cardiovascular system. It's not your heart's pumping capacity that you're limiting you because it these long duration events um, even if they involve a high percentage, a lot of ma- uh, muscle mass, they're at a, a submaximal intensity. The only time you're limited by your heart's pumping capacity is at a very high intensity, which you can only sustain for you know two or three minutes. So, you know, let's say you know running, running a used to be you know considered like you know a thousand meters would be about as that's about as very high intensity running. And there you're going to be limited. The speed you can run at is going to be limited, you know, for three or four minutes, limited by your heart's pumping capacity. Oh, that's, but when that's you, counterintuitive. That's like backwards from from kind of what I would think. I would think the heart would play a greater role with the longer, easier stuff. Well, it's it's limited by the amount of oxygen it can deliver. Well, at those maximum intensities, it need your muscles need a lot of oxygen. And so if the heart is maxed out and it can't, it's going to be at some point, it's going to not be able to live, deliver any more oxygen because it's maxed. It, it's at its pumping capacity is maxed out. But at submaximal intensities, the heart's got plenty of pumping capacity for you know Chris to hike up that hill for 20 minutes because it's quite sub it's submaximal for him. So the limitation is no longer central, it's peripheral. Now in, in a sport like rock climbing where you're dealing with a much smaller muscle mass and the failure is local, but the failure is still local muscular fatigue in those in those forearm muscles, because it's a relatively small muscle mass, your heart isn't the limitation. Got you know, it. That makes sense. It's got plenty of capacity. So in either case of the both ends of that spectrum, we've got the limitation being local muscular fatigue. So if we can improve local muscular fatigue, again, for the full spectrum of power, from power endurance to these uphill hikes like Chris was doing, if we can improve that local muscular fatigue, we are going to improve the performance of the athlete regardless of what we do centrally to the pumping system. Um, and there is there is a genetic limit to, you know, people's, the pumping capacity of the heart. And some people are born with bigger hearts than others. And, you know, that's just the, the luck of the draw. Um, and it can be futile to try to improve that if you're a well-trained, I mean, a, a well-trained athlete's heart pumping capacity is what it is. Because mm. they've been training like this for 10 years, it's not going to change. It's limited by actually the the pericardium, which is the the fascia that surrounds the heart and holds it in place, because that's not stretchy. And you know, when you reach the limit of what the pericardium can handle, you know, can stretch to, then you you, you can't get your heart just can't expand anymore. Huh. Um, but anyway, back to this muscular endurance. So you can train muscular endurance a lot of different ways. Um, you know, you you can just stand in your in your living room and jump up and down. So your legs get really tired and then stop and rest for a couple of minutes and then jump up and down, down to your legs get tired again. That is training muscular endurance. It's that simple. Now you can devise all kinds of other ways. Like in your case, you know, with rock climbing, especially because we're dealing with very specific, you know, a very small and specific group of muscles, you need to train that muscular endurance in a very sport specific way. I mean, it needs to be, um, you know, like doing wrist curls is not going to probably, that's going to train the big muscles in your forearm, but it's not going to train finger strength. Mm. So you need to do things that target, you know, all these, the muscles that control all these different joints in your fingers, in your, in your type of uh, muscular endurance training. And with Chris, 
where the event he's training for climbing a big mountain is looks like, you know, you're just climbing up a steep hill with a heavy pack on your back. And so we can simulate that out at Smith Rocks. I mean, I used that same hill for myself when I was training for K2. I used that same hill many times with Steve when he was training for a lot of the climbs he did and he lived there in Terrebonne. And I did it with Chris and I've done it with other people. We use that, that hill is probably getting very worn in by now. <laughs> that trail that goes straight up the fall line. But so in general, I've liked to keep the muscular endurance training as event specific as possible. But because there are more than one way to train muscular endurance and in a sport like climbing or excuse me, a sport like mountaineering or trail running, um, as long as we're training those same muscles, we can use different methods. And so I've used, generally for mountaineers, I use this weighted uphill carries like, like Chris did. And the way that works, just so there, I've written about it on the website, people can read, but essentially the way it works is that you you have enough load in the pack and the, tra the, the trail you're hiking on is steep enough that the limitation to the speed you can go is this local fatigue in your legs. It's not your heart rate. It's not your breathing. And in fact, if the, like Chris has very strong legs and we had to really, he's not a very big guy, we, but we had to put a heck of a lot of weight on his back in order to elicit this local muscular fatigue. But the intensity is such that he could carry on a conversation while he's hiking up that hill. Wow. Because the, the fatigue isn't central anymore. It's targeting those specific muscle fibers that are kind of at their endurance limit. It's a little like we were talking about uh, targeting those muscle fibers in the climbing sessions. We were, you know, it's it's it's, tar it's working right at the frontier of his muscular endurance. Now, so that and those, those that system works great. We've used it for many many years. You know, 30, 25, 30 years on lots of different people. Similarly, this gym muscular endurance workout that Chris talked about that we shifted him to was not because the other one wasn't working, but after you've used a particular training stimulus for quite a while, your body will have adapted to that stimulus. And by just changing the stimulus a little bit, we can see new improvements in that quality of muscular endurance because your body is going like ho-hum, here comes another muscular endurance workout. I'm, you know, I'm, I've done this a million times. And it's probably made a, many of the adaptations that you've looked for, but it might be kind of topped out on those adaptations. And so by what I did with Chris, and I've done this with a lot of other alpinists, is we switched up and we did this more high intensity. It's it's a lot of jumping um, that involves, it's more ballistic and it has more eccentric loading because you're jumping up in the air and landing. Um, but it's, it's a progressive thing. It's one of those workouts I talked about that progresses over a course of about 12 to 14 weeks, depending on how much time you have. And, um, it's done usually just once a week and it's, it's very intense and it will leave for most, well, most of the in, endurance athletes already are kind of slow twitch biased and it came, it came out of the factory with slow twitch muscle fibers predominantly. And they tend to get pretty sore from this type of training because they're not used to that high load. Um, whereas people that are more fast twitch dominant or very strong, they tend to not get so muscularly fatigued or so they don't soon they get fatigued they don't get the soreness <clears throat> so i found that usually two to three days of recovery are required after that workout but it's also really a powerful stimulus i didn't invent this workout i got it for one of those soviet 
coaches uh, I talked about, this guy named Yuri Verkashansky, who's kind of one of the granddaddies of you know, modern training theory and especially strength training theory. He trained a lot of throwers and jumpers, Olympic throwers and jumpers. And he developed this workout. To you, he used it with middle distance runners, and it was a similar workout. And I've kind of cribbed it and taken some ideas from it, and a, but made it a little more sports specific. So I use it a lot with runners, ski mountaineers, and um, occasionally, probably a lot of times with climbers. But um, it's it's both of them are very effective at developing. Now I wouldn't use I don't really I don't use that weighted uphill carries for runners. Because it's it's the frequent it's uh, too it's too slow, you're not moving fast enough. So I tend to use this gym based session that that Chris was talking about that was so brutal. Um, we use that one more for runners and the mountaineers. We stick usually more with the weighted uphill carries because that obviously looks a lot like their sport. Okay, got it. So you still use both. It's just that for Chris, he's already done a lot of the uphill dreaded water carries. And uh, it was time to switch it up just to keep his body kind of on its toes, so to speak. If you don't have the terrain, like Chris had access to that very, very steep hill um, by the Burma Road, um, you know, some people won't have access to that. Now, they one option is you could do this on a stair machine. It's actually a really good way to do it on a stair machine. But other people who don't have access to vertical terrain, then we'll use that gym-based type of session. Okay. And almost everybody hates it. So they hate it until they see the results. And I have I have a couple of alpinists I've worked with now for years. And this is a root. I mean, every time every training cycle, this we this is we have a block of muscular endurance training that's built into their training. Um, you know, for every one of them every year, at least once or twice, at least once a year, maybe twice a year. Mm. I'm glad you said that because that reminds me of a question I had a while ago, going back, you know, an hour in our conversation about uh, capacity versus utilization. How often do you think athletes should have training blocks and how long should those blocks be to really change the size of your capacity cup? That's a good question. It probably depends a little bit on the athlete, depends on the capacity you're trying to build. Like there's an, a saying with you know, endurance athletes is like, there's no such thing as too much aerobic capacity can't happen in it for a runner and any mm. endurance athlete. Um, whereas like there finger is strength for those for, athletes. for climbers. Right. It would be like, there's no such thing as not having strong enough fingers. Um, so you can just train the hell out of those qualities without worrying about, um, you know, overdo. I mean, obviously you have to worry about overtraining all the time or injury risk and those sorts of things. But I mean, in general, when you're, you're dealing with those types of qualities, more is almost always going to be better if you can handle it. You know, if your body, if your body is able to handle that, that's why, you know, someone that, that whole, that training block you were talking about with Adam Andre at the beginning, like he can handle it. And so he's going to see huge benefits from it, but he's got such a huge bank account that, you know, that he's not really probably, that's not a problem for him to handle that much work baked into a week or however long that training block was, um, often, we see, like, you know, again, I'm going to relate it back to something I'm more familiar with. You know, in the running press, they love to publish some workout or some, you know, here's the last four weeks of so-and-so's training before they won the Boston Marathon. And you go, well, yeah, that's great. And it's a really impressive. But what did they do that allowed them to handle that much work 
and still benefit from it. Um, you know, it's not like that was the secret to their training. So that thing that we saw Adam Andre do, or some of these phenomenal feats that we hear about Killian pulling off, that's not what he's doing all the time. It's it's the past, like you know, for Killian, it's like the past twenty years right. that he's right. built up that's allowed him to do that. Yeah, you might be able to go do that same training block that Adam Andre did, or that Killian does, but would you benefit from it, or would you come out of it a wreck mm. or injured? or something and it's you know so it's a capacity they've built that allows them to handle that um so i think that's one way of, of kind of looking at that again using again i'm i'm sorry to saying this again it's using kind of traditional sports training theory that explains all this stuff um so i guess i hope that answers that yeah yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Okay, I think I have two more things I want to talk about, and then I, and then I'll let you go. I guess we can we can maybe do a final wrap up and make sure there's nothing that we missed that you want to talk about. But you mentioned K two. That's another thing that's on my list here from Chris. I would love to hear about that. And then um, I think we should talk about weighted pull ups because apparently you are incredibly good at getting people better at pull ups, and I think climbers will be. Uh, I think they'll. I think people listening will love that and, and geek out about that. But yeah, K two. It sounds like you have quite a history with that mountain. Can you tell me about um, when you first tried it and, and what your history with it has looked like? Yeah, I've only been there once. Um, oh, okay. I have been to Pakistan a couple of times. Um, Colin Haley and I attempted a route on the south face of Nanga Parbat in two thousand five. Um, but other than that, I, I was in K two in nineteen ninety five. Um, and it didn't go well. Um, I didn't summit, um, and two of my climbing partners were killed. Mm. Um, and so it, it was a, it was a kind of a bit of a fiasco. Uh, they were both pretty high profile. I wasn't, I'm still not, but they were pretty high profile climbers. Um, one of them was Allison Hargraves. Um, and she had, she was quite a successful alpinist, and um, she had just a, a month or so before done an unsupported, ox no supplemental oxygen, um, solo ascent of the North Ridge of, of Everest. And her goal was to climb uh, Everest, K2, and Kachanjunga, the three, three highest peaks in the world, within one climbing season. So um, she came over and met me and the other guys that was with on K2 to climb with us. And Rob Slater, um, Rob Slater was a, quite a well-known big wall climber from Yosemite. Um, a little bit of a crazy guy, actually. Like I think you have to be to climb A5. Um, but he was so he he had kind of he had organized the trip actually, um, and so we had some. The monsoon was very strong that year. We had some really huge storms, so lots of avalanches, which would just kind of rip the 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 the, the, um, the camps off the mountain. You know, there would be no camp when you went back up there after the storm. Wow. And so it, it made a, we made a lot of um, effort on the mountain, and um, eventually it. I decided, you know, I don't think I've got much more left in me to give to this mountain right now. And I could, I felt that this, the same was true of everybody else. Um, and so there was kind of a general decision that, okay, it climbs over, you know, we've just like, we were getting, it was, the conditions were so bad that and the storms were so frequent that it just wasn't going to be going to happen that year. And it's the kind of thing that, you know, 
alpinists and mountaineers tend to live with. It's like, okay, you can do the best job of preparing, but you know, a lot of this is completely out of your control. Whether it's some you know stomach bug you pick up in a third world country to you know snow or an avalanche or weather conditions, um, so it was a unanimous decision we we're going to leave. And on the day that we were leave, going to leave, Allison and Rob suddenly said, "No, we're staying. We're going to." And all the porters had were were we you know let the the we'd send somebody down to get some porters to come up and help us carry all this stuff back down the glacier because it's it's quite a long way in there. It's almost fifty miles up a glacier. Um, and it, so that, as you can imagine, that created a bit of turmoil in base camp that day, which is like, wait a minute, you want to stay? Everybody else, we're leaving. And all the stuff, we're, you know, we've hired all these porters, we're leaving. Um, and the the upshot was that they stayed. And um, unfortunately, they made one more attempt, and they were both killed mm. um, in a storm. And it was it was so it got it got a lot of press back then and you know this was pre-internet and um but it was on you know news stations and of course in england allison is british and shit was a huge news story in england and i ended up kind of getting involved in you know telling retelling that story over and over again and the details and and whatnot um now that's a long time ago but yeah that's my experience on k2 i got really close to the top three times you know i mean each time i felt like okay this is going to be it and then we would get slammed by weather um so i i, I think we we touched and me and the partner i was climbing with um we touched eight thousand, i think once um or came very close to it eight thousand meters um and k2's um 86 11 8611 mm. meters um but again, we just, it was our, I mean, I'd been doing that kind of climbing. I, mean, I started climbing when I was in high school and I'd been climbed all different kinds of, you know, ice climbs, rock climbs, mountain climbs, whatever. And so I had a pretty big experience base for this. And, you know, I just, I used to climb with this guy named Charlie Fowler, who I don't know if you remember that name, but he was sort of a legendary soloist in the seventies. And Charlie and I climbed a lot together. Um, and we we failed a lot on a lot of climbs where we just said, okay, we're this is too dangerous, we're, or, or we're not prepared, we're not fit enough, we got the wrong gear, whatever. And I actually wrote a whole little essay about this that Charlie taught me how to fail successfully. Um, you know, many people when they fail, there's a lot of ego involved in failure, and and you come back with your tail between your legs. And Charlie, who was very well known at that time. Um, I mean, for soloing some very hard routes. He's the one who did the first ropeless climb of the diamond on Long's Peak. Oh, wow. Um, the, 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 the reason the casual route is called the casual route, um, I did the second ascent of that climb. But the reason it's called the casual route, when Charlie got back to town and he's kicking around, you know, and I, I just said to him or another, somebody else said to him, so, so how did it go? He goes, oh, it's casual. <laughs> and, and so that's how the name came to be. Um, but anyway... What Charlie's deal was when he failed on something, he would boast about it. He would come back to Boulder and just talk about, man, did I get crushed on that? I, you know, I just, I didn't have it, or I had to back off, or um, that kind of thing. He had no, he was totally unabashedly, you know, open about failure, and just embraced it. And and I, on the other hand, had you know more fragile ego or whatnot, didn't didn't do that but then climbing a lot with charlie i learned oh yeah this is it's okay to fail so by the time i got to k2 you know many you know this was i'm talking about early 70s back then and then by the time i got you know 20 some years later 
I'm much more mature with this and probably have a much lower risk tolerance than I had when I was, you know, 18 or 20. And I just said, no, this is not worth it. Um, and I'm, you know, we're bailing. And, and like I said, everybody else was um, along along with that. I went along with that, except for Allison and Rob. It was very, it was very tragic. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for sharing that story. Um, I didn't know that part. Um, I kind of I'm sitting here wishing that Chris had warned me about the outcome of that trip. But yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I love I love that I love that lesson that you learned about failing. Um, gracefully or failing proudly because it, it is so hard to do. And I mean, even, you know, even as a b- boulderer or a sport climber out there, you know, now I'm a little bit more public. People tend to know what I'm up to or what my goals are and things like that. And there, there is that kind of uh, deep um, tendency or I don't know, assumption or fear, I don't know, of of saying like, oh yeah, I did go try the thing and it kicked my ass and I didn't stand a chance on it, so I pivoted. Um, for whatever reason, it's still hard for me to just own that sometimes. And I, I think we, most of us tend to shy away from that, but I always really respect climbers who are just transparent with that stuff. They're like, oh yeah, I trained for this thing for two months and then went down and tried it and it kicked my ass and man, I wasn't even close to being prepared and um, I don't know if I'll go back or, I, or I'm definitely going to go back and here's what I learned or, or whatever it is. I, I always feel like, man, I respect that person more. I respect how hard climbing is. I think that's something that um, I need to be reminded about. I was just having a conversation about this with a, with a friend of mine, how it's just so funny. Like we you know, all of us listening to this, we we go out of our way to seek out these challenges, these things that we know are going to push us and um, and require us to grow and change in certain ways. And then it's it's just silly how often we get annoyed that the thing's difficult. You know, when that's the entire point of the, of the whole entire yeah, thing, it's I, like, well, yeah, we, climbing wouldn't be that fun if it was easy all the time. Like we're seeking yeah, out things. That I mean, are hard yeah, you for, would not get the sat- same satisfaction right. if you just climb five ten all the time. Right, right, I mean, right. That's too easy. Yeah, it's not challenging enough for you. No, I I agree. I think that it you know that, but humility I think is a really important human trait. And you know, in this day of you know Instagram and the internet and whatnot. We don't see enough humility, in my opinion, where people, you know, admit to their weaknesses and own up that they know they are just human because it's so easy to crop that video so that it only shows you crushing whatever you, this thing you were trying to do is, you know, again, it doesn't show all the hours of failure and training that led up to that. It just shows this one amazing moment. And we tend to, we put those people on a pedestal um, when in fact they're, you know, obviously there's you know talented people around and people we've been talking about, but they are people, you know, they're they're just people and they've probably got all the same flaws and problems <laughs> most of the rest of us are trying to deal with too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was for me, yeah, it was a huge thing to especially at that age, you know, 18 to 20 years old, you think you're immortal, you think there's nothing you can't do. Um, to have the, you know, and Charlie was exactly my age, and but to have that same kind of perspective. And be, I think it was because everybody knew how good a climber, Charlie was like a secret weapon on a climb. I mean, when you, when that next pitch was nasty and wet and icy, Charlie would just dance up it, mm. you know, and it was like having him along was like having your own, like, you know, personal top rope on every pitch <laughs> as you needed it. Um, but anyway, he, um, 
I think that was a, a pivotal moment in my development, you know, psychologically. I'm certainly not perfect at it. Of course, I've got an ego like everybody else, but it did kind of put things into perspective, especially when you think about what we are doing is a stupid, ridiculous little activity. I mean, the only person that benefits is you. Um, you know, and and yes, there may be some momentary glory, and maybe you may even make some money from it, but we are not you know, saving the world or curing cancer or any of those kinds of things. And I think it's important to keep that in perspective that this is a first world problem that we're talking about, you know, in terms of, I mean, these are first world um, benefits, the fact that we all live with this wealth and this freedom and capability to kind of spend our idle time doing something silly. Totally. Yeah, I, I, a hundred percent agree with you. I also think there's like almost a paradox there because, you know, you, you have made your entire life about helping athletes reach their goals and, and do cool things in the mountains. I've made my entire life about pursuing harder climbing, helping other people pursue harder rock climbing. And, uh, I get a lot of uh, fulfillment out of that and, and a lot of meaning out of the work that I do. But, you know, hearing you say that it's interesting kind of begs a question. I think this is something that a lot of non-climbers feel confused about, rightly so. Um, maybe I'm just thinking about my parents right now. I think they're like, why do, why do people do stuff that's dangerous like that? But, you know, after that experience on K2, given that the climbing is kind of this silly thing, why keep doing it after something like that? How did that experience influence your, your climbing and your career moving forward? Um, Honestly, it didn't it didn't change my world at all. Uh, I mean, I was very sad uh, about what happened, and you know, I, yeah, that that, that had a, I had a period of mourning and grief for what happened. Um, I didn't play any role in it, so I didn't you know it didn't affect me deeply. You know, it was a decision these two made um, that we the rest of us argued very strongly against. So it was like, what can you do? So it didn't really change my perspective about the danger of climbing. I'd had many close calls up to that point and had many close calls after that. So I don't think that part changed for me really. And I, and I going back to what you were talking about a second ago, like, why do we do this? It, because of that, for the, because this is, we live in this first world wealth and freedoms that we have, we had to invent these challenges that you know, either there are so many people around the world that have to, are challenged to stay alive day to day, you know, whether it's finding food or you know, not being killed. Um, but this is the these challenges that we're artificially creating, whether it's playing baseball or rock climbing. I mean, we, we've created these games for ourselves um, that I think are bringing up an essential human characteristic. I mean, they, they're bringing to the forefront this human characteristic that could ease that for many people that live in the, the in the first world that has been completely lost in their lives. You know, we, you and I, and the audience is listening to this. Like, we realize that there is an essential component to risk and you know struggle and those kinds of things. That that is that's essentially human. But we don't need to do it. We could very easily sit at home and play video games or, you know, we could live a very comfortable life that didn't involve this stuff, but we've chosen not to. And I, you know, even though it's a silly game, I think it's still vitally important. And like you, you know, I've found tremendous meaning in this in my, through my life. And, uh, and as I said earlier, it's one of the things I maybe the thing I'm the most proud of is having created this 
kind of framework of, of training ideology that people can understand that and use in these mountain sports because it has helped them. It's enhanced their experiences in the mountains, just like the, the gratification and fulfillment you get from helping somebody rock climb. And, you know, I, th I think that, you know, I'm at an, an age of my life, I'm going to be 70 here before too long, um, that you know, my days of performance are over. You know, that's, I'm never going to perform at that level again. But now I'm at a place where I can share those, the, my knowledge and that with, uh, with the mountain community and hopefully save people from making some of the same stupid mistakes I've made through my, my life and, and, and have, but enhance their experience in the mountains. Mm. Oh, I love that. That's that's awesome to hear. That makes me curious, though. What does your own uh, athleticism look like these days, or, or your enjoyment of the mountains? What do you what do you spend time doing? Do you still have well, goals? And I just to try to not decline any faster than it. <laughs> trying to, you know, try to slow the decline. Let's say. Um, no, I'm. I try to be as active as I can. I don't really. I don't train anymore, honestly, because I don't really have major goals. Um, I just exercise a lot or as much as I can, but I, you know, I'm running this business with, you know, we've got, you know, 18 other coaches working with me. We have this, you know, kind of a coaches collective that has formed to create the evoke endurance brand. Um, it's keeping me really busy, um, busier than I was hoping to be with it, uh, <laughs> but it's okay. It's, it's keep, you know, it's something to occupy me, but I do, I, I do quite a bit, quite a lot of skiing, um, running, and um climbing when i can can i've i've got an indoor climbing gym got a tread wall and you know some other things like that in a gym so i'm staying pretty darn active for a 70 year old but i'm not um i'm not crushing i have to say <laughs> <laughs> I, I i think i made this uh, i decided a, a year or so ago i started training really hard to to get back to some decent rock climbing level and I, I kind of came to this conclusion that damn, I'm probably never going to climb five twelve again. <laughs> just, just, I just can't seem to get there again. Mm. And I just, it's, I was talking to Josh Wharton about this, and you know, and, and I just, I can't generate the same level of tryhard mm. that I, even ten or fifteen years ago, I can really notice it's dropped off. And so, yeah, that that ability to pull really hard just isn't there mm. anymore. I wish it was. And I keep trying to find some training method that will get me to that, you know, get my pull hard back or try hard. Um, but I haven't found it yet. So I just I just try to I'm a I'm a duffer. I just mess around with all this stuff now. <laughs> Does that bother you at all? Or is is what it yeah, is? I mean it's certainly it's, it's coming for all of us. So I'm just curious. Oh yeah, it is. And I think it is, you know, more and more, you know, I'm, I'm I'm in the baby boomer generation, and there's a hell of a lot of baby boomers out there, and they're all beginning to deal with this kind of a problem if if they've been active. I mean, there's a lot of people who are inactive and have never known fitness at a very high level, so they are they don't they're not they're not dealing with it. They're just seeing, oh, I'm aging, and you know, I'm, I'm a little less able than I was. Whereas those of us that have had really active and tried to perform at a fairly high level we really see the de degradation in our abilities. And I've found over, especially these last 10 years of doing this publicly, you know, for having, you know, worked with Steve at Uphill Athlete and then broken off and formed this business. Um, I've really seen a lot of requests from aging athletes mm. who are saying, okay, how do I deal with this mentally and physically? You know, how do, what can I do to, um, so sort of, again, like me, slow the decline. And the thing I have learned 
and I, I mean, I knew this intellectually, but now I know it kind of viscerally is that you just got to stay strong. I think, you know, because that's the thing that's allowing you, whether it's to go for a run or to go rock climbing, you, it needs a certain level of strength and, and for your safety, for your, you know, so you don't get hurt or injured, but also just to complete those movements there's a certain level of strength and strength is one of the things that goes away fastest as we age. There's a, a process called sarcopenia, which is the wasting of muscles. And there's an unavoidable level of, of that as you age that you, you know, so focusing on strength training, I think for the, you know, the group, the crowd over 50, because it becomes way more important. Like I spend a lot more time strength training now and probably less time running than I would have, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Because you just take your strength for granted. Then it's, it's there. It's, it's always going to be there. But I've I found that I can. I'm I'm better at running. I'm better at climbing. All that stuff if I stay strong. Mm. So for me, that's that's been a big lesson, and that's my takeaway for old people like me. <laughs> yeah, that's be strong. Yeah, be strong. That's great. I mean, we, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast on this, but I'm curious what that looks like for you. Is that like? Is that high intensity is that compound lifts because something i see a lot in uh in older generations is um and, and maybe there's truth to it i don't know what it's like to to be in my 60s but um i think people get afraid of lifting heavy and they kind of naturally gravitate towards small weights high repetitions you know they they move away from real you know real strength training so what does that look like for you and um maybe what are some common misconceptions there I think your tra- training for back strength is the way to go. It's really time efficient. Um, it's not metabolically very demanding. So recovery from max strength sessions is usually pretty short. In fact, I've used max strength sessions as recovery sessions after high intensity aerobic work. Like m- maybe we do intervals in the morning on the, you know, skiing, running, whatever. Well, that evening we'll go to the gym and do a max strength session where, you know, an abbreviated one. So maybe we only do a couple of lifts. Maybe it's deadlifts and pull-ups. So we're in both of those using really high, a lot of muscle mass. And maybe it's only like after a warm up, three sets of three reps at 95% of your one rep max. Um, Because there's, that has, doing that, especially before bedtime, can release, you know, these really important hormones that will help you speed recovery, like human growth hormone, testosterone, they get a boost from max strength efforts like that. And if it's not very um, metabolically demanding, the, the workout's fairly short and the, the, you know, the number of reps is fairly low, then it, the, it doesn't, it's not taxing the same system that you taxed that morning with the intervals. So it, I've done that many times with people and they, they all, they will almost always report, Oh yeah, I felt much better the next morning. Huh. So I think, um, you know, you could do that, you know, simulate that with climbing, you know, maybe it would be a, an abbreviated campus session, um, as you're, you know, kind of, a, because that's maximal power and rather than, you know, max strength, which are, we don't have to talk about power and strength. That, that'd be another podcast. Right. Right. <laughs> no, that's interesting though. That, that doesn't break your earlier rule about your central nervous system fatigue and, and doing strength when you're tired. This, this is, sounds like this is serving a different purpose. It's more. It's yeah, exactly. It's a recovery session. Okay. Really. Huh. I mean, I'm not, I don't really care how much they lift. It's just, we want them to use a high muscle mass with really high effort for a very short period of time. And then that stimulates the release of these uh, hormones. Um, 
but it but it, I think max strength is is very important. It's the it's the one I would recommend people use, but you have to be conditioned for it. So because the, the loads are very high, so you will need to engage in kind of a conditioning program to get you know your connective tissue ready to handle that kind of maximum load. You can't walk into the gym and try to deadlift 400 pounds effectively if you haven't ever deadlifted before. Um, you know the, the risk for injury is pretty high. So I think periodizing strength with a general conditioning phase before a max phase. Um, I don't normally with any of the athletes we work with, we don't do in any hypertrophy training, um, you know, high rep to exhaustion type of training like bodybuilders do, because most of the athletes we in your world, in my world, they're having to move their body weight and we don't want to add mass to that body weight if we can avoid it. So, but max strength training is purely a neurologic effect. And so it doesn't increase your muscle mass at all. Um, that's why it worked in that, in the, when you're talking about that pull-up routine. Um, so it, the, in the training for the new alpinism there, I, I described this routine and I, there's a picture of a young girl skier teenager. I think she was probably 15 or 16 in this, um, uh, in that book, in that article that I wrote, and she's doing pull-ups with a 30-pound dumbbell hanging from her waist. And she did max strength only. Now, that the reason I did that, I developed this with these young girls, is that women are not going to get muscle. You know, they're, they're not going to gain much muscle mass. It's very rare to have a woman who puts on muscle mass, especially in the upper body. And so why bother doing a hypertrophy period of training for them? Let's just throw these girls right into a max strength training, which is, you know, high, um, high weight, high, high percentage of your maximum rep or maximum lift with usually sets of, you know, four to five sets of, two to five, two to four repetitions, something like that at that maximum limit with a very long recovery. So you're, you know, the ATP creatine phosphate has a chance to recover, nervous system recovers. Um, and I saw huge gains with them. So I developed this pull-up routine for skiers, upper body strength is quite important. Mm. And teenage girls are not known for their upper body strength. I mean, teenage Young girl climbers maybe are, but teenage girls in general are not known for that. And I was dealing with non-climbers. So most of them could not do a single pull-up when we started this routine. And then eight weeks later, they're doing weighted pull-ups. Um, and <laughs> awesome. it, it worked it, it worked amazingly well. I can't fully describe it perfectly right now because I wrote it many, many years ago. But if people want, it's in the Training for the New Alpinism book. It's all described there. Um, and I've used it with people who had plateaued. Um, you know, climbers that are friends of mine who are climbers said, yeah, I, I plateaued at 18 pull-ups and I can't get, can't get any better than pull with pull-ups. And I'm, you know, they've tried that. They've usually tried the high volume approach. Um, and I say, okay, well, this, this is in a low volume. No workout is going to contain more than about six or seven reps. The whole workout's only going to be that long. And what they'll find is like eight weeks later, they'll say, yeah, I did 30 reps. I can do 30 <laughs> pull-ups eight weeks later. Wow. Um, and so anyway, it's it's not magic. I again, it came from standard strength training <laughs> methodology. I just thought, oh, that looks like it could work. Um, but it has worked. I've seen it work with a lot of climbers now, friends of mine who, you know, stagnated. And and as you know, pull-ups are they're they're kind of the the deadlift of the upper body. I mean, mm. it's it's sort of a, it's a great demonstration of of upper body strength um, because it uses so much muscle mass. Um, how much it applies to climbing. You know, at, at some point, general movements like that 
aren't going to help you. I mean, if you can't do one pull-up, then yeah, learning to do five or six is going to probably help your climb. But, you know, if you can do a one-arm pull-up, does that make you a better climber? You know, and there'll be some things you could do better, but, you know, it's that type of general strength isn't usually the determining factor for good climbers. Totally. It's like the deadlift. You know, the, the deadlift, you know, if you can't deadlift your own body weight, then you might become a better runner if you could get a stronger deadlift. But would it make you a better runner to move from, like, as you said, from 405 to 420? Is that going to make you run better? Probably not. Right, right, that's right. Not anymore. Yeah. Right, yeah. I, I like to say I've I've still, you know, I've recorded interviews with 150 different people or whatever and I've still never met someone who deadlifted their weight to 514. You know, mm. it's uh it's it's helpful. It can certainly help your climbing. It's helped my climbing, but um but I always you know, like last summer when I was posting about it, I don't know if I did the greatest job of keeping it in context. It's like, this is like less than 10% of my total training. This is one session once a week that, you know, the whole thing takes like 20 minutes or whatever. So probably way less than 10%. Probably yeah, probably, the, probably. Less, probably yeah. in the single digits. Yeah. Right, right, right. And that's yeah. just like one training block um, in the yeah. last few years that I've done it. So. No, that's great. Cool. So um, let's wrap up with that. Where can people find you, Scott? And uh, what do you want people to check out? You've got Evoke Endurance, your company. Uh, yep. You've got a podcast. You've got your books. Um, and I'll link to everything yeah, in the show notes. But yeah. Um, yeah, Evoke Endurance is a good place to find me and all of our coaches. And they all use the same training principles that we've been talking about today. All understand these things. Um, I'm you know, fanatic about training the coaches so that they understand training theory like I do, because it's, even though some people would wonder why you want to spend so much time in that theoretical realm, I believe that, you know, as we've had this discussion today, you can see that this theory applies across this huge spectrum of different kinds of sports. And if you understand that, then when somebody comes to you and, you know, they're asking some oddball question about a sport, maybe you're not that familiar with, you can say, okay, well, I can go back to these principles and, you know, maybe we can help, maybe we can try to figure this out. So I'm a huge believer in that. Um, yeah, the podcast, I try to, you know, get some interesting folks out. They're generally going to be from that, you know, the endurance end of the scale there, because that's sort of my world right now. Um, and I, I, we have an Instagram, I have an Instagram, but I don't really know how to work it. I'm not really, I have a, there's a young woman that helps me with it because I'm, I don't know how to do it yeah. very well. Uh, that's how, that's why I don't use heart variability. No, stuff it's, it's good. You're, you're staying away from the dopamine snacks. Good for you. But but we do have a, an Evoke Endurance Instagram that follows you know a lot of the athletes we work with, and we have some really impressive coaches um, who are actually crushers and get out and do the stuff themselves. So they're they're not just you know talking. They're not like me where oh, I can just talk about training. I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they're actually doing stuff. So uh, but yeah, I, those would be the play, the ways that people could kind of follow me or what we do at, at Evoke. Awesome. Well, yes, I will link to all things Evoke Endurance and Scott Johnston in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for you guys listening. I'm going to wrap up with one last question for you, Scott. I've loved this conversation. It's been so good to talk to you. There's a lot of nuggets in here. What, looking forward, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, you've seen the sport of alpinism evolve a lot. You've been a huge pivotal part of that. Looking forward, what excites you the most about the world of alpine climbing and mountain endurance? 
Well, those are two separate questions. And alpine climbing, I think, you know, what we're we're seeing is a level of the technical as the technical skill levels of alpine alpinists increase, they're more and more comfortable on hard technical climbs that they maybe are doing, you know, in at a sport climbing area or um, you know, in a, a sunny, warm environment, single pitch climbs or whatever, taking those that skill set into the mountains has has elevated climbing, uh, um, the alpine climbing, um, more than I had expected. Honestly, I didn't think that would transfer over. Um, I mean, Steve was famous years ago for saying no one will ever climb five thirteen at eight thousand meters. Well. I'm not so convinced of that anymore. Mm. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't think it's around the corner. I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to see it, you know, in the next year or two, Yeah. but we're seeing phenomenal levels of climbing at very high altitudes in very remote settings. Um, and that's, that's exciting. It's really cool to see that people are taking that in that direction. So that's that area with, with running. It's almost the same thing that we're seeing in the, the sport of ultra running faster and faster athletes getting involved in it. it you know the appeal to ultra running it really I, I think for most people is you don't have to run that fast you know you don't need to be able to run a you know five minute mile to run a hundred mile race mm. whereas if you're going to go to your local 5k or 10k it's all about speed and you know speed endurance but it's still there's a speed component to it Whereas in ultra runs, it's almost, it's more like, okay, I want to survive this. I, you know, I'm going to be shuffling. And even I'm not using that term derogatorily that that's a common usage among ultra runners. They call it the ultra shuffle. You know, they're not really running. Um, not running like, you know, somebody who's running a 5k on a road looks like, but what we're seeing is people bringing road running speed into the ultra running world now. Um, one of the guys that I coach, a uh, British guy named Tom Evans, was third at the UTMB this last year, which is you know kind of the the biggest ultra running race in the world. It takes place. It's a run around Chamonix, a run around Mont Blanc. It starts and finishes in downtown Chamonix. And I mean, Tom's got amazing speed. Like uh, you know, these numbers might not mean a lot to your audience, but you know, he's run under two ten for a marathon. He's uh, run like a one oh two half marathon. I mean, compared to most ultra runners, that's phenomenal speed. I mean, it's almost it's it's just on the cusp of being world class at the, you know um, in the running in the uh, road running world. But we're going to see more and more of that, I think, because you know there's that sport is becoming more and more professionalized. Um, I think there's some issues that need to be addressed with it in terms of doping. I don't think there's you know it, it, the money in it now is big enough that there needs to be some doping controls there. Uh, like in other sports, there needs to be more testing um, because of that. You know, I think there's it's been a little lax because it's been kind of like a good old boys club, you know. And everybody knows everybody else, and but as it gets more and more competitive, you know, there's going to be more and more um, kind of opportunities or benefits from cheating. Mm, more incentives. So I think that would be would be nice to see a little more control in that area. But I think those are the two big changes that I can see in those in those areas. Well, awesome. Scott, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for uh, for your abundant time today. I've taken up three hours of your time, but I've really loved this conversation. And, uh, 
You know, you say that you're not an expert. Your caveat to me before we talked was, you know, you're you're not an expert in rock climbing, sport climbing, bouldering, whatever. But um, man, I've taken away so much that I can use personally in this conversation. I'm sure my listeners feel the same. Um, I'm sure the alpinists out there have been like, you know, have been waiting for this episode and are going to be frothing at the mouth when they see it come out. But uh, I think the rock climbers had tons of nuggets to take away too. So thank you so much for your time and all your wisdom. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's been a lot of fun for me too. I, you know, it's, I, I did tell you, I, I was a little worried that coming on, you were going to start peppering me with questions about, you know, fingerboard training or something <laughs> like that. I, was I do that like to everybody it. else. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I would look like it though. Um, you know, those, those, those micro training pr- prescriptions are, are really important to put things into effect. Um, just like, you know, designing this progressive interval training program for a runner, that micro level of, of detail is super important, but it's underlaid by these general principles that we've been talking about that, you know, like, so the things I, the, the nuggets you talked about that you've taken away from this are general concepts. They're not, you know, they're not, it's not telling you how many reps and sets you need to be doing or, or that sort of thing. I, I don't have that expertise, right? but you know, at this, at a, you know, more like a, you know, 30,000 foot level, I can say, okay, these, these kind of techniques apply across the full spectrum, but no, it's been a lot of fun. And I, I feel more relaxed and comfortable now that we've had this talk. I was a little nervous. Oh, great. I'm glad to hear that. Is there anything that we missed? Um, you know, anything that you were hoping to touch on today that we didn't get to, or any loose ends to tie up before I let you go? Yeah, maybe one last thing. And that is that, you know, what what I've tried to do in my career as a coach is to get people to understand that there is an intellectual framework that supports training ideas. That it's not just one single random workout you saw on YouTube that's suddenly going to make you a better climber. That there's all these pieces that that need to fit together, and that you know this is a pretty well understood science. I mean, as well as you can understand a science that involves you know, an organism as complicated as a human. I mean, these theories about training um, are fairly well understood and well, they've been practiced and adjusted over time to where they're they're pretty solid theories. Um, And that when I talk about in the books and I go down these rabbit holes about the metabolic process, where they're, you know, the aerobic metabolism, the anaerobic metabolism, the interplay of those two, the lactate shuttle, the vacuum cleaner, all those kinds of things, is that I think, the audience, the general audience for this stuff are intelligent people. They can understand these concepts. We don't need to dumb it down or cut it in, make it into little sound bites um, so that it's digestible by people in, you know, they don't, they can read something for 30 seconds and, and suddenly know all this information. I think, you know, making it accessible, but also deep enough that people who are, you know, people are curious can understand, learn this, can understand it and not be intimidated by it. Because I believe that this, this first principle um, kind of approach that I've been talking about all along, understanding these underlying governing principles, that that's the key to success in all these sports. But knowing like, why am I training this way? What do I hope to have happen when I do this? So that's my, my takeaway is, you know, there's, this is not simple stuff. I mean, it's sort of simple, but I mean, it's, you're not going to, just by following somebody else's or oh, do this workout and it's going to, you know, 
make you a star or whatever. It, it's more complicated than that. And I think having this, you know, framework in which to view training is important. Yeah, no, I love it. I mean, that's, that's the common thread with everything that I try to do. You know, I, I ask high level athletes what they do, but I'm always in search of those principles that the rest of us can, can relate to our own situation. You know, those aha moments, those light bulb moments that we can, we can hear from learning about what's, you know, someone else's history and their approach and say like, oh, wow. Okay. Maybe I can use that idea over here and think about how that might apply to my training background, my goals, and experiment a little bit on myself or, or work with a coach and see if we can integrate this, this idea. So, but yeah, yeah we've, uh, like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying, and knowing why, what am I expecting to happen here? Why is it, what's the underlying, you know, physiological, you don't have to be a physiologist. You don't need to be a biochemist, but understanding at a basic level, what's the physiological reaction here I'm looking for and so, so that you know why you're taking three minutes rest between whatever mm. you're doing, so that you understand what's going on there. I think that's you know important for most people. And and I want to respect the intelligence of the reader or the listener that you know you can figure this out. I don't need to make it prescriptive and stupid. And say, Here's a training plan. Go do it because you're too dumb to figure it out. Heck, if I can figure it out, anybody can. <laughs> I love it. Well, you've done a great job presenting the information in a way that that um, helps the rest of us make great sense of it. So keep it up. I will link to Evoke Endurance in the show notes, uh, your podcast as well, and Scott's books, Training for the Uphill Athlete and Training for the New Alpinism. You guys can find all that stuff over at thenuggetclimbing.com. Hope you've enjoyed this conversation and found it helpful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey friends, a few quick reminders before you go. First thing, The Nugget is now on YouTube. We're sharing some of my favorite clips from the podcast in eight minute long videos. And they're super cool. I'm really proud of how these things are turning out. And the YouTube channel is a great way to sample other episodes before diving into a two hour podcast. And it's a great way to revisit some of your favorite nuggets from the show. Just search for The Nugget Climbing on YouTube. I also put a tremendous amount of effort into the show notes for every episode. You can find those at thenuggetclimbing.com. If you ever want to learn more about a guest or watch the videos or buy the books we talked about or see the Instagram post we talked about or whatever it is, you can find links to all of the things in the show notes for each episode at thenuggetclimbing.com, including links to all of my sponsors. Thanks again to all my sponsors for this episode. You can check them out in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. You'll find a list of sponsors for this episode and their coupon codes, or just scroll down right there in your podcast app. I make it really easy for you guys to have great deals on some of my favorite products. Again, just scroll down right there in your podcast app or check out the list of sponsors in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Finally, if you want even more great content, if you've been loving the show, I have a Patreon. I have tons of bonus episodes over there, almost 50 bonus episodes that I've published so far with past guests from the show with more bonus episodes 
coming all the time. They're called follow-ups. Follow-ups are some of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast. You'll get access to all of those and ad-free versions of the regular episodes, as well as uncut video interviews if you prefer to watch the video. All of that for $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing to learn more. And there's a link for Patreon right there in your podcast app as well. Thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. I appreciate all of your support. I hope you're having an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it.